episode five is uh, welcome to episode five, uh, listener, dear listener. Um, I'm going to assume this was a this was a this was a, an interesting one for me, and I'm going to assume that uh, listening listening to this one, I'm going to assume that there's a whole lot of people who don't know me, and and who I have never met. And the reason for that is because um, this episode five marked the first occasion. Uh, well, I've got to be careful because it was because Nicholas, as I've said, Nicholas was the uh, was the lead singer in Graveyard Train. And plenty of people know Graveyard Train, but um, I think Nicholas would agree um, that this was this would be the first time I've interviewed a mate who's been, I would say famous, I would say famous. Maybe not, you know, Keith Richards, to, to, use, a, to use a character that we discussed at length in this interview, but maybe not Keith Richards famous, but, but certainly well known, um, not just in Australia, but around the world. And Dennis Tech is somebody who has led an utterly, extraordinary life on any by any objective measure I mean just just go to his webpage as we as he said you know in his pro forma when he returned it you know the bio there's detailed bio on his website we don't need to rehash it all here but you know grew up in America came to Australia uh, you know doctor um, became a top gun pilot with with the US Navy started and was lead guitarist in a seminal 1970s Australian rock and roll band who continue to tour. He continues to write music and tour now. You know, he's a he's a fascinating guy. Um, and for him to agree to do this was, you know, obviously for me it was um, it was a bit of a an honour. You know, I understand that for him he's got, he's done loads of interviews, and for him it it it, it might have been work. Although afterwards he said the most beautiful thing to his wife when he said. Um, they didn't feel like work, and I was just really happy about that. He also said, for those uh, Radio Birdman and Dennis Tech fans out there, he also said that I, I got stuff that he's never spoken about. So there you go, to encourage you all to listen. Um, but the you know this was the first time that I sort of thought, well, okay, I've got to, you know, this is not, as I've said, this is not a stepping stone to something else. This is not, okay, I'm going to interview ten of my mates and, and, and then um, and then you know I'll see what big names I can get it's not about that although one day clearly I would love to interview Brian May I'm just going to say that right now straight away Brian May Brian if you're listening um, but no the uh, so what I've done I'm, what I'm saying is that basically I've, I'm aware that with interviewing Dennis then that I've immediately um, brought someone who's who's quite famous into into Heliosphere but having said that he's a mate um, you know, and and there's no way he would have agreed to do this if we weren't if we weren't pals. So, um, this was a this was just a, a brilliant brilliant day. I drove down from from where I was staying in Sydney to to the house where he was living, um, a couple of hours south of Sydney, just just on the coast. And um, you know, he made me lunch, and and, and um, his wife. And, and his manager were, were in the house, and they very, very kindly lent me Dennis for for a few hours in the end. 
and gee, it was just a fascinating conversation. You can hear, I think, that's, to start with, I, I, I spoke way too much. Um, and, and, and then he makes a wry remark about probably not returning to a point that we were talking about before. So you can, you can sort of hear my, let's say, unstructured approach to interviewing. And what that means is that, you know, I don't prepare in terms of these are the questions I'm going to ask and we're just going to go through. We, we, we dive down whatever rabbit hole appears uh, to me at any time. And we and, and I think it gives a wonderful freedom and 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 I know that as this interview went on we both just warmed up and it, it ended up being just so much fun. So I hope you'll really enjoy this episode. My my friend Dennis, thanks man. Thanks for in, one doing this, two inviting me into your house to do this, three give me a, an amazing lunch of ribs and salad before we do this and just i don't know just just being so open to doing all of this yeah more than welcome i told you man i'm 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 a little bit on tenterhooks here because i don't want this to be the thing i didn't say your name yet this is dennis tech i'm talking to guys this is dens agreed to be trans transported to the outer reaches of our solar system and stranded on a on a space station unfortunately you know that you know the, you know the thing guys the unfortunately dennis on his way back from in, interplanetary space something went wrong with his with his engine with his light with his warp whatever that thing is the light speed thing actually you'd probably know more about this than almost anyone i'm ever going to speak to but we'll come to the pilot thing later and then you get stranded just past pluto you limp into deep space station gideon I'm not quite sure why you can't be rescued, but there's some problem with you being rescued. So, so here you are, you're on your own. You can just see Earth in the distance and you've got just seven albums and seven songs. And thanks for subjecting yourself to that, man. Yep. So how are you feeling on this space station? Pretty relaxed. Yeah? Yeah, you know, there's not a lot to do. The, you know, all of the automation takes care of everything. So a lot of, a lot of spare time. And that's okay? Oh, yeah, writing, you know. I mean, I know you're not going to sit down and do nothing. Writing music and stuff. Uh-huh. Writing music that maybe no one gets to ever hear except you and your robot. Yeah. And that's okay? Yeah, well, the robot records it, so <laughs> See, it'll, it'll be around, you know, long after I die, the robot will be there. So huh. sooner or later, somebody will hear this stuff. That's not an answer. Whether they like it or not doesn't mean, you know, is another question, but that doesn't make any difference to doesn't me. Doesn't make any Okay, well, that's that's not an answer I was expecting. So, as a musician that's played for hundreds of thousands of people live, and who knows how many people through your recorded stuff, you're still you're still okay with just making making art for art's sake. No, no necessary audience apart from the robot and for future posterity. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, you it it's nice when people like your stuff, mm -hmm. and and there is value in in um enhancing someone else's experience or enriching someone else's uh life by them liking your music yeah. um nothing wrong with that no but it's not the only reason to do it hypothetical question just came to me we were just discussing before i pressed record and i'm going to be checking i mean this. if you would have asked me this when i was 21 or 22 years old i would have said it 
absolutely don't care huh what anybody thinks of it and and if i you know playing to an empty room is perfectly fine yeah um but but i've mellowed on that a little bit now i'm <laughs> happy to happy to do something that pleases people as long as it also pleases me also you know and 21 then 21 year old dens in in australia already yeah mm-hmm so what I just thought of while we were, while we were talking just then was we were talking about you know your well documented love of the Rolling Stones, mine less well documented, but love for the Rolling Stones and especially Keith, I think, Keith's your man. Yeah, you know, I love love the Stones as a group and mm-hmm. and love Keith as a guitar player mm-hmm. and songwriter. Okay, not so much the the Mark Maron loves Keith because he represents, I think, the idea of rock and roll in a in a. Uh, embodied in a human being it wasn't so much that it was it was the technical ability the swing the the groove the sound the rock the songwriting for for you and keith yeah but i guess that's the same thing isn't it i think that what mark's getting at is that kind of is that lemmy uh you know keith i guess slash to an extent like how people can live the vicarious screw you to the man and the and the rock and roll dream through these larger than life almost cartoonish characters that these guys represent. You know, the Keith thing, you know, like Keith, the, jo- the old joke about the apocalypse and Keith and a few cockroaches, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I know all that, all that stuff, all the story. But I met him and um, he just seemed like a guy that likes to play guitar yeah. and, and, and quite a nice person, you know, mm. um, uh, someone who was considerate to me mm-hmm. and and not at all um suggestive of that of that persona that mm-hmm. everybody puts on Keith like you know there's books yeah. what would Keith say what would Keith do you know you get the Johnny Depp Keith mm-hmm. you get all these Keith, oh, yeah. different Keiths yeah and and it's all larger than life and all yeah. it's just a it's not it's a story in people's head yeah and and that's been promoted by by various things in the media but yeah, to to me, that's not what the guy is. The it's, the, I suppose he's a representation of rock and roll personified in the way that he plays, yeah, and in the way that he writes songs. That that's that's it at its most basic level, mm-hmm. but not in so much of an attitude mm-hmm. issue or okay. or being the guy that outlives cockroaches or anything like mm-hmm. that. You can see where all of that crap came from. I mean, it's like a, it, that's the legend of Keith, right? The myth that's grown up around him. I mean, when you before, and and I'm gonna, I mean, he will he will joke about it himself, but right, but right. but he doesn't take any of it seriously, right? Let me actually again go back to Lemmy. He he did refer just before he died. He he was interviewed. You know, he sounded so sick, man. It was it was kind of tragic, but he was still Lemmy, and he kind of. He was Lemmy till the end, you know, like he never felt sorry for himself or, or, or regretted a single day, I'm sure. But he did refer to meeting Keith and them having this kind of, oh, yeah, you know. Or no, it was Iggy, actually. He said Iggy as well, I think. he, You know, it's like the, 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 the pressure to live up to whatever the hell it is that people have foisted upon them over the, over the decades, you know, to be that guy, to have a drink, to buy Lemmy a drink or to, you know. Have, I guess it's the selfie and they, they feel the pressure of living up to that image that was created in the early seventies or the mid seventies. But when you might, when you I don't made, think Keith felt any pressure to live up to anything. <laughs> no, right. Or maybe Keith's a bad example. He's just his own man. But when you met, so I'm going to, as I said to you, we just strolled backwards, back and forward to your gorgeous local beach here. And, and I said, I don't, I really, 
driving down, I wasn't sure of myself at all because I know you've sat through a million of these and I don't want to waste your time. I was hoping we might, if I find something in the next little time that you've, that we can explore that gets some kind of truth in, that's, that's good for me. Just something that we can, that we can get to. Um, and I don't want to rehash old stories necessarily. So I'm going to refer people to your, I think your webpage has the Keith, the Keith story, the, the, the guitar sale story. Right. Is that true? Is that on your webpage? Yes. Uh-huh. So I'm going to refer anyone that's listening to this, any radio Birdman or, or Dennis Tech fans to that story. And it's quite an amazing story. But to go back to the point, when you were that in that elevator or whatever it was going up to the room, was it with how old were you at that stage? Um let's see, that was February of seventy-three. So so yeah, I would have been twenty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So going up, what were you, well, what were you thinking, but what were you expecting? Were you expecting the, you know, the, um, the South of France, uh, you know, um, sticky fingers or the, or the, you know, the, um, were you expecting the, the man of the legend that he became or just a musician that played great tunes? I wasn't, I didn't really have any expectations mm-hmm. on it. You know, I did, I had no idea what to expect. Were you scared? I, I'd, you know, I'd seen him play several times live. Yeah. And and I think <clears throat> you get an idea of what somebody's might be like mm-hmm. just by how they are when you mm-hmm. are in the same room with them. Yeah. Even though you don't speak to them, they're on a stage and you're in the front row. Mm-hmm. But um but yeah, I didn't know what he'd be like. I had I had no idea. And 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 I didn't expect anything. So I, I thought I'd be lucky just to shake hands with them and say, fine, um, take the guitar, see you later. But it, it worked out much, much better than that. But, um, yeah, I was just sort of taking it one, one minute at a time. Yeah. And you know, that thing with guitarists, you give someone a guitar when you did it to me earlier on, gave me one of your gorgeous guitars to just play unplugged. You, you look at what the other guy's going to do, right? You look, to, you know, you look at my hands. If you, if I give you a guitar, I'm going to say, okay, what's, you know, do you go to a yeah. cowboy chord? Do you go, what do you do? Do you play some pentatonic lick? Did you think, oh shit, when you gave him your guitar, what did, did he just do some key thing or was it just kind of? Yeah, well, what he did it. with it was he, he asked for an amplifier to be brought into the room and, mm-hmm. and the room, the hotel room was his suite. And there was about, I don't know, maybe 30 or 30 people in there. Mm-hmm. All, you know, it's like a party. And, and he, he looked at the guitar and he goes, Oh yeah, bring somebody, bring me an amp. So they wheeled in a Marshall half stack. <laughs> um, like a full on, like a 50 or a hundred watt head. Yeah. Somebody oh went out God. and got that and wheeled it into the room. Oh my God. And they, and they played a tape of the oh. of the concert that they had just done that night right, right they played it and he played along with part of that tape wow. a few a few played a few songs mm-hmm. just with along with the tape that's cool uh, on the guitar that's that was the first thing he played on that guitar mm-hmm. that I gave him and then later on in the night when everybody had left that room it was just Keith and Mick Taylor and Bobby Keys was passed out in the the, the doorway to the bathroom yeah he had to step over him to get to the to the toilet, and I actually did reach down and check a, a, a pulse. Did you? Oh yeah, because he didn't look well that done. good. No. But but he but was he was breathing. And this is um, pre medical school though, right? 
Yeah. I was no, I was in medical. You're school. in medical school, right? Right. <laughs> so you did. You remembered your training in in the midst of all of that. Yeah, I just thought I'd better check and see if he was alive. Composure. And and um, <laughs> and then Keith played uh, the guitar for the rest of the night. He just sat on the couch with mm-hmm. it plugged into that, not loud, mm-hmm. but plugged plugged in and um, just played the guitar and mostly played licks off of Exile. Mm. Yeah, so that's what I'm, by the south of France, I just my mind went blank. Yeah, right, because that was just what, what year did you say? Seventy one. 73. 73. So the exile been out maybe a year, just over a year. Yeah. Damn. Yeah, that's right. Exile was the album of the tour. And what, the world just went away for Keith? He just went into that zone and just lost himself in it? Yeah, but he would talk to you as well. You know, he'd be still engaged. Yeah. Did he let you play at all? No. Hmm. I mean, I could have. If if I said, hey, give me that guitar back, I want to play something for you. He would have said fine, you know. Mm. He would have been totally cool with it, but yeah. he, but I wouldn't. I didn't want to do that. I mean, obviously. What would you play? And what would you play exactly? What would you play and and um, you wouldn't. Huh. You'd just watch him play. Yeah, that's what you'd do. Huh. I did ask him about the open G tuning. Yeah. That, so did he didn't do that? He didn't do that when he got when he got your guitar. Um, no, and. Um, it was tuned standard and he left it in standard. Mm-hmm. And I asked him about the tuning mm. because that was a new thing. You yeah. know, he had, I, every, we all knew that he had a five string guitar yeah. mm-hmm. that Newman Jones had made and that <clears throat> was tuned in a certain way. That mm-hmm. was how, how you play those songs. And I asked him about that and he showed me how to tune the guitar to that mm-hmm. and talked about how he came to that. Yeah. And, and then, played songs in that tuning for a while but he was cool with it was still cool with standard he, you know oh yeah he was just yeah what a stupid question of course he was <laughs> but you know there's a I, the, what i've heard and and this is the thing when you speak to to dennis um if any of you ever get lucky enough to do that then there's the story there's as you said the apocryphal stories yeah we were talking about something else i think earlier on but there, and then there's the things that you've witnessed like i'm i'm you know in a in a crazy way um I and whoever's listening to this is now partly to someone who actually saw it with their own eyes and, and it, it came from the source and that, that line passes through you, you know, the, the line of the, the legendary players and the stories go on and on and they get embellished and everything else. But you, you get the unembellished version by sitting and talking to you because you were there. Yeah. And we, do you see him at all in, in the years since? You ever run into him down the, down the road? Not personally, no. Mm. I went to more stone shows, mm-hmm. but, but I, I never – got a chance to talk to him or mm-hmm. or uh, or meet up with him again later he one thing that was amazing was that his uh documentary came out last year mm-hmm. yeah and um so i watched that and and his guitar technician um had a little segment and mm-hmm. he said he was talking about how he when keith wants to pull a guitar out of storage and play it he'll you know work on it and Mm -hmm. get it uh and um get it set up and and he said sometimes restore them Mm -hmm. and and he said and this is the one i'm working on for him right now because he he wants to play this on his solo album and he pulls out that national uh valtrol baron that i sold him. that made it to the film it's in the film yeah oh he pulls it out and did you know that was going to happen no 
So you're just watching it. You're on the couch. Yeah, and you're, I, you're sitting there. And I turned to uh, to Anne and I said, "That that's that guitar. Oh. That's that guitar that I sold Keith right there." Oh and um, it was amazing to see it. Yes. And uh, and he talked about it a little bit, and then it went uh -huh. on. The documentary went on, and so I contacted him later. Uh, actually, actually, Anne set it up and we contacted Pierre Beauport as his guitar tech and said, yeah, you know, we saw the guitar in the, in the film and we were really happy to see it because I sold Keith that guitar in 1973 and, and it was great to see it. And, uh, you know, and thank you for, for showing it in the film. And, and he wrote back and he said, he said, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. And, uh, and he said that, um, for our information, we might like to know that Keith played that guitar on Blues in the Morning on his solo album, oh. um, which came out like last year or the year before. Mm -hmm. I forget which year it's it was. One he, the, one he did in New York with... Um, the Double the double Album, mm -hmm. which is a lovely album, by the oh, way. I haven't heard it. Oh, God, it's great. I think out of, out of the three Keith mm -hmm. solo albums, that's mm -hmm. the one I... Oh. Uh, it's my favorite now. Was that? Um, well, for one thing, the, it's not all Steve Jordan. Mm -hmm. That's the guy I was trying to think of. Yeah. And yeah, I appreciate Steve Jordan's technique and everything, but, but I, I, it, some of it gets tedious, mm -hmm. that, that drumming style. Mm -hmm. Meaning what's for you is that, does that mean like too much of the Phil Collins about it or too much of the studio ace about it yeah it's a little slick and mm -hmm. and and it's like consciously so far mm -hmm. behind the beat that it's right it's like okay you're, you're doing that charlie works, that works occasionally but okay yeah i got you that's real right okay so this and it's way loud in the mix too okay presumably keith just left that to someone else i don't know does he does he do his own mixing i don't know well i don't know that the other thing i wanted to say is i I guess I could call it, it's not a disclaimer because I don't care, but they, there's very definitely a tone of these interviews that I'm doing to musicians when I interview musicians, you know, and I, I almost want to apologize to people that are list, that listening and probably that's just my mum and I don't know, maybe your family, but um, I make no apologies for if we get into severe guitar nerdism and music nerdism at any point during this. I make no apologies for that because this is my podcast and I get to ask and all the questions that I want to do. So I'm going to just keep going with that. No, that's fine. Conversation. You know, <clears throat> if people aren't interested in it, they don't have to listen. They to don't it. have to listen to it right on. And anyway, you're alone in a space station. I figure you get, it's going to be pretty lonely for you. So you get, maybe I'm your robot just now in a non-sexual, non-weird way. I'm just your kind of, this is, I'm just your company. Maybe that's the conceit. Right. Is, I don't know if that works. I just thought of that then. The analogy doesn't work, actually. Forget what I just said. So your guitar resides in Connecticut then, uh, Keith's. That's where he's based now. That's like, like he's, uh, he's got a storage with these things. Yeah, I, th I think his guitar storage is in New York. Okay. And for what, what I read, and he's, he's got quite a few of them. I think he says thousands. <laughs> thousands. Like, do you ever, and this is a kind of a macabre question, but do you ever think, shit, man, when he dies, what's going to happen to those guitars? I mean, they're just going to be auctioned off to charity. What's going to, they're going to go into some hedge fund manager's portfolio. God, I never thought about that. I don't know. What do you want to do with them? 
Well, I guess play them, right? You know, that's the one thing about those guitars is that there's so many of them that most of them never get played. That's why I was happy that mine got pulled out. Yeah, and got played because guitars need to need to be played. What happens when a guitar doesn't get played? Uh, they they tend to go off. Yeah, you know they don't. Um, they begin to develop uh, unpleasant habits like not staying in tune and having neck uh, problems and things like that. It's not just the strings that that get tarnished is it there's something else that happens it's like the life goes out of them yeah that's right so they need to be played fairly regularly to 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 remain you know a good guitar Mm. and um so it's a bit sad if a guitar gets put away on a shelf and never played i didn't lead you into this as a trap but so therefore it brings us to out to your the epiphone the white epiphone you say wilshire is it or crestwood it's a crestwood crestwood yeah so what's the plan for that piece of rock and roll history well i you know it's um I don't really have any plan for it. Um, I uh, The last time I played it was <clears throat> three years ago. This guitar was the one that was previously owned by Fred Smith from the MC5. Yeah. And I bought that guitar when the MC5 broke up mm-hmm. and a couple of the guys went to prison. Um, Michael Davis and Wayne Kramer and um, and they sold off a whole bunch of their gear mm. and uh, I was able, able to get that guitar mm. and um, the guitars it, it sort of became iconic mm. in in the small niche of Australian hard rock music mm-hmm. that's sort of Detroit based yep that um that I was kind of in the vanguard of and it was on the album cover of our first album the the white version and um so a lot of people started getting these wanting to get these epiphones mm-hmm. and you know I remember an early interview with uh, that Chris Mazowak did um he was another guitar player mm-hmm. in Birdman he's mm-hmm. not in the band now but he uh he did an interview in the press and somebody asked him a question and his answer was, Dennis isn't that great of a guitar player, but he's got a really nice guitar. Oh, so the guitar is actually, damn. in a way, you know, you talk what about fame, you talk about fame. What the, the gu- fuck was that? Was he out of the band by that stage? Was it, was oh, no. Mazowak still in the band? Well, that the, the band wasn't, that was in a hiatus period of the band. What a dick. Well, I wouldn't say that. It's, oh, no, that's no. his opinion. I, yeah, I, I can say it's that. It's totally fine. He's a dick. Um, that sounds. I don't know the guy. But that's a dick comment to make in the press. If, well, you know, even it, if you it, think it, who cares? I mean, I, I'm, huh. I'm I'm not in this to be um, in a guitar technique competition. You know, no. that's not what I do. But um, but the only point I was making with that was that the guitar had its own uh, notoriety. Oh yeah. And, and so I don't take, you know, it's very valuable Mm -hmm. and it's probably as far as leaving something to my kids when I'm gone, that's probably the most valuable thing I own. Yeah. So I wouldn't like it to be stolen. No. I have lost it before and got it back on the airlines. 
And oh. it's had the neck broken off three times. Sound better once it got <laughs> fixed. The, the, was it one of those ones that got better once it got glued back together? That happens sometimes. It's about the same. About the same? Didn't get worse, though. Didn't lose something. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. No. And uh, got it repaired. I've got to ask you, shout out to the repairman. Who who did you give it to, to to fix it each time? Dan Earlywine. Where's he Where's he live or work? He Last I heard, he was working in Ohio, Dayton, either Dayton or Akron. Huh. But he was, Dan was from Ann Arbor. Mm -hmm. And he was the first guy I took guitar lessons from. Oh, okay. And and yeah. when I was twelve years old, and at that oh. time he was in a band called the Prime Movers, mm -hmm. um, with his brother Michael on keyboards, and this guy Bob Chef on bass, mm -hmm. and and uh, James Osterberg on drums, who's Iggy, and. So they were in the prime movers yeah. and, and then later Dan became a famous guitar builder and repair man. Okay. And he had the guitar repair column in uh guitar player magazine. Oh, he wrote that column. How long we're going back a few years, years and years yeah, and yeah, years yeah. and years. And he as his shop was, he moved his shop down to uh, Ohio. Now I did do some research for the, well, no, I didn't do any research for this, but when you sent me back the pro forma and quite rightly said, you know, my bio's out there and I thought, oh yeah, pennies drop. My friend Dennis actually is quite well known. And so I read that this guy was quite a ball breaker. He would make you be this guy that would make you practice. He's your, your teacher made you practice. And in fact, like myself, in a short period of time, you decided that, yeah, you weren't really into learning the notes and the scales and you wanted to pick up guitar by ear and kind of teach yourself and watch other guitarists instead. Is that, is that true? Is he that guy that was like your, he was the regimented guy that wanted to teach you to play properly? Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to, to work out? Oh, maybe I'll just listen to some Jimi Hendrix or some. Well, it was about three months, <laughs> but that was way before Hendrix. Oh, we go way back. Oh, well, I just picked, I'm sorry. Who was the, who was the guy that, who's your guy? Who's your guy apart from Keith? Well, um, we're we're jumping thoughts before we finish the previous. No, it's like it's rabbit holes all over the place. I'm sorry, that's my style. If you want to do that, Let's that's do okay. It. I'll I'll drop. All I know those you other can. Thoughts. No, no, because we can circle back to it. But I just, I don't think we're going to circle back. <laughs> Something tells me that once it's no, gone, it's gone. <laughs> no, we will. I promise you will. We'll go. The thing is, no, go on. You 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 now control the next minute of this interview. You tell me that who who's your guy, and then you circle back to what you were just about to say. I'm sorry. As rude of me as an interview. Who's my guy is a, is a 20 or 30 minute discussion. Okay. All right. Well, let's circle back then to the. All, all I'm saying is this took place way before Hendrix. Okay. Um, talking 1964. Oh. <clears throat> and the, uh, and Dan, you know, I, he'd give less, you have to learn the week's lesson. Mm -hmm. And it was classical. And so you're playing the bass line with your thumb mm -hmm. and you're playing the the melody yep. and the chords with your fingers and reading music, you know, a staff of music. And that was that was what he was the way he was teaching. And there was one this particularly difficult one. And um I really wasn't that interested in learning how to play classical guitar. I wanted to play rock and roll guitar. And uh but I was putting up with it to be able to get the technique. And if I'd 
did the lesson correctly, my reward at the end of the the hour was he'd show me a rock and roll lick. And we're going along like this. And then this one week came up and I just didn't, I just wasn't into it. So I didn't learn the lesson. And he got, uh, he got agitated and told me that I was lazy and I was wasting my parents' money. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, your parents are paying me to teach you how to play the guitar and you're not doing your part. You're not doing the homework, you know, and, and, uh, and he sort of got into me about it. And that's when I said, that's it. I'm, I'm done. You're 12, 13. Yeah. About 12, that's 12 and a half. Mm-hmm. I said, I'm, I'm done taking lessons from you. You know, I, not interested anymore. I was offended by that. And so I just taught myself from then on by yeah. watching guys, mm-hmm. watching guys' hands. Um, there were places where people would get gather in Ann Arbor and play mostly folk music, but, uh, this is the place up six flights of stairs in the yeah. old building. The, yeah. um, yeah. And, and, uh, and then listening to records and just yeah. figuring out what the guy try to figure out how to play the, yeah. what I was hearing on records. Yeah. Yeah. And at that time it was 1964. So it's Beatles, Stones. Um, Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, The Ventures, you know, pop music, mm-hmm. surf music, mm-hmm. these these kinds of things. And that that thing that that surf and what Dick Dale kind of stuff is that the Ventures was surf as well, right? That that yeah. kind of ultra clean that that kind of slapback ep- um, delay echo, yeah, instrumentals, yeah, yeah. And that stuff kind of stayed with you a little bit to my ears, and you know, I came. Growing up in England, you know, I no, no disrespect, I came quite late to Birdman and 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 all of that. Actually, when I made your friendship, basically, but um, that's to my ears. There's there's something of that kind of rock and roll still in there, that like almost the Chuck Berry. There's there's something of the surf. That should be in there. Yeah, is that is that fair to say? Oh, definitely. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. That's where I learned how to play, and and you know, by listening to those records. Yeah, and therefore. I'm choosing my words carefully. Did it? Did it seem like I don't know? And I don't know if this is even true, but that but that you seem to kind of get lumped as a band into the kind of punk thing, um, which I guess was about energy and and the middle finger to the establishment or whatever. But that was the content of the music. Did you feel like being compared to those like the Pistols and well, actually, that's not a good example. They're a great band, I think. But you know the punk thing, the as in the anti. Uh, anti-technique, you know, three chords, anyone can be in a band, they don't have to know how to play an instrument. Did you find that offensive when, if you were ever lumped into that kind of thing? We didn't find it offensive, but we, we found it to display the person's ignorance that was saying that. Right, right. And you'd be a smart bunch of guys. We have to say, you know, we admittedly, you know, we, it, it wasn't correct to lump us in with all of that musically, but, but we did benefit a lot from it. Okay. Because up until that point, up until punk sort of became known, nobody knew what to make of us. Mm. We couldn't be identified with a label. Right. Um, and if, because we couldn't be identified, we weren't really accepted yeah. by any kind of, established musical institution i mean mm-hmm. we'd we'd been 
barred from playing in any of the major uh, venues in Sydney. Yeah. And the Miller's Pub Circuit and all of that were where bands go to get started to develop. We were banned from all that. So we, um, once the, once punk happened and these people thought we were punk, then we, and you know, it, it, there wasn't any punk in Australia then. So we were probably the closest thing mm -hmm. to what they thought it might be. Then we started getting offers. I mean, it be, we became okay because we, that we could be labeled. Okay. And this is, would, would so that's, when, that's when we got to be, go on TV, you know, on the, the real thing and on, on the ABC rock Turnal and these show, TV shows. And was, we was, didn't go on countdown because, right. because we would have had to, um, mime and oh. we re refused to mime do a song to was a that, track. Was that the Molly Meldrum thing? Yeah. Okay. So was he a kind of, ch I mean, I, he was the guy, right? He was like pretty important in Australian music scene in terms of breaking bands in yeah, those days. Absolutely important for breaking bands commercially. And was he a fan of yours or did he hate you or, or indifferent or? I think he was probably in, interested in us until we refused to be on his program and then he hated us. Oh, because you had to go, it's like top of the pops in England when I was growing up. Yeah, all the bands were miming, you know. But some of them would subvert it, you know. Like there was, I can't remember who it was, but some came on and strummed a bunch of flowers or something instead of their guitars or something, you know. They just. Subvert. I think the best example was the Brazillos. Uh huh. What's that? You know the Brazillos? Uh huh. Oh man, you should check out the Brazillos. Okay. A band from um, Glasgow. Oh, okay. Yeah. They were label mates with us on Sire. Okay. 1977, 78. They went on Top of the Pops and did a song called Top of the Pops, <laughs> which was actually their only hit, oh. which was a great song, which basically just took the piss out of Top of the Pops, and they played it on Top of the Pops. That's good. And it was, it was a, yeah, check that out. Go, go, there's a YouTube of them doing it. That's it's like fantastic. It's like that snake that eats itself. What's that thing? The 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 snake that's eating its own tail. Yeah, right. Yeah, great. Um, the girl singer's name was Faye Fife. Fife, <laughs> and you know Fife is a very that's a Scottish town, right? I guess that's not a real name. It's not a real name, but that's where she's from. She's from Fife, and when and the way they speak up up in that area, they say if they say I'm from Fife, we'd say from. They say I. I'm Faye Fife, you know, they, right. and so she became Faye Fife. Oh, it's like the dialects got. She said, I'm Faye Fife. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to, we've got to pause here. And we're not going to, we've decided between us that we're not going to do that. I'm not sure it's working anyway. Like the, the pausing to listen to music thing, <clears throat> but we're going to, I'm just going to say the first choice or you, Dennis, I like, I'd like you to tell me your first choice of, so you set these seven albums that you've picked for the, um, for your potentially the rest of your life marooned on this space station. Could you just tell me why you picked the first one and the song you picked from it, please? It was um, <clears throat> Stooges fun house album mm -hmm. and the song 1970, which is the first track on the album. I think it's the first track on the album. Mm -hmm. That's um, why did I pick that? Um, I can't imagine living without having that album around, you know, it's just, it's the greatest uh, I don't know, probably one of the greatest rock and roll albums of all time. 
What was it about that one? This is the second album? Yeah, second album. What was it about that? Because I, again, I my Stooges album was the first one and I got into it from through, um, now, now I want to be a dog. That was my entry point to the Stooges. Yeah, that's well, not a bad entry point. It's a pretty fucking good entry point. And what a great song to play as a guitarist, right? Someone hands you a distorted guitar and says, play something and you rip into that. That descent. You know, you know what the inspiration from that was? How, how where, he, where Ronnie got that riff from? I just heard Iggy tell this story on. But you tell it. You tell it. I've forgotten what he said. There was this guy named John Sinclair who was a like a jazz and blues archivist, historian, knew everything about those genres, and he was the MC5's manager. And when the Stooges got signed, he brought a armload of albums over to the Stooges' house, Stooge Manor, where they lived. Stooge Manor. They're all sitting around watching television. And he brings, just drops this pile of records on the, on, you know, on the table and says, you guys need to get educated on this stuff. And um, so, go, yeah, thanks, John. And go back to watching TV and smoke, <laughs> smoking pot and whatever. And <laughs> And, and then they have to go record the first album. And, uh, so they, they went to New York. They're at the Chelsea hotel. We have, we've got to be in the studio tomorrow. We haven't got any songs. (laughs) They didn't have a single thing because they hadn't been doing songs before. They they? didn't, they didn't do songs. They did jams. They did like what they called energy freakouts. Right, right. You know, and they they were doing things like you know playing vacuum cleaners and and, uh. and putting <clears throat> microphones in blenders, and huh, really? So and, like the like the like the the zapper and the beef heart, the, that kind of freak out, but taking it more more huh. more extreme. Wow! And <clears throat> really doing sort of this performance art, yeah, and and uh, which I loved absolutely. Mm. They were mm. fantastic. But they didn't have any like songs, mm-hmm. so I said we got to we we got to have some songs by tomorrow. So they put on some of those records that Johnson. They had a little record player with them, and <laughs> Yusef Latif is a Detroit jazz guy who yeah. did a double album called Detroit. Yeah, and there's some, and they were listening to Pharaoh Sanders and Yusef Latif and getting riffs. And then just build developing those and building them into little songs. Wow. So they had like the first two or three and then went into the, on the first day and then uh, they ever get any trouble with the the uh the publishers? No, it wasn't that it wasn't, wasn't like a, that. It, it wasn't, wasn't a rip off. No, it, was it was just, just like a, an inspiration yeah, more than yeah. anything else. They weren't ripping it off. They were yeah. just saying, Yeah, we can use this riff here and that riff there and yeah. build this into something completely new and different, which is what they did. Wow. But you, if you listen to those albums, you know, if you listen to Pharaoh Sanders' Upper and Lower Egypt and and Yusef Latif's uh, Detroit album, you can hear some of those Stooges songs in the background wow. of that stuff. And and um, and I think John Cale was delighted to be involved with that and produce that. It's, and the first album's fantastic. But Funhouse goes to another place. Okay. With Funhouse, they incorporated james brown into it the funk yeah. element went into it he said that he said that and it's the one you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just whacking on the mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. really hard and then um turning the beat around 
and and uh, and then they brought in the course the saxophone player Steve McKay who <clears throat> was a free jazz player up until that point he was in a band in Ann Arbor called, called Carnal Kitchen <clears throat> and we used to go see Carnal Kitchen play and and um I had no understanding of what they were doing but it was fascinating. It was free jazz. Yeah. So it's like Ornette Coleman type stuff. Yeah. Like, like just going out there. I mean, well, and, and then Hendrix took some of that stuff, right? Yeah. More or less like Ornette Coleman or Albert Ayler or, mm. or um, Sun Ra, you know, mm. those kinds of mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And, and there was a connection between those genres and rock and roll in, yeah. in Ann Arbor, oh. Michigan and Detroit at that time. Yeah. In fact, the MC5 used to have Sun Ra play at their concerts yeah. and they would intermingle like the guys in the MC five would play in sunrise band and some guys in sunrise band would bring horns and play in the MC five set when they did songs like starship and things like that. And, um, it was just this merging of those two things. And, and so the Stooges brought that in, in, in the Funhouse album, yeah. they brought James Brown mm-hmm. and free jazz saxophone playing. And um, there's just nothing out there like it at the time.
I don't want to do that lazy thing about modern music, you know, in my day or whatever, but it just seems to me like, you know, well, just you've just mentioned not even in Michigan, you've not even in, you say in Ann Arbor, this stuff, and you're, you know, you're specifically, and I know a little of the history of this place, you, you know, there's, there's places and times in history where for something, for some reason, there'll be, a, there'll be this geographical thing, I guess you could say Seattle maybe in the early 90s, the grunge thing or, or whatever it is. And for some reason, there's this confluence of events and this just this, like the game just gets moved forwards. And here I am sitting with with someone that actually, you know, witnessed it, was there and saw the whole thing as it came through. Were you aware? Like, were you were going, shit, this is happening. This is this is amazing, whatever, whatever this is. I knew it was amazing, but I didn't know it was as unique as it was. Right. I mean, I thought it must be like this everywhere. <laughs> Every town in America. Like, you know, I'm 16 years old or yeah. 15, 16, 17 years old. And, and you know, and the, the MC, the Stooges, born and raised in Ann Arbor. I went to the same school. And the Rationals, Ann Arbor. Bob Seeger, Ann Arbor. Um, was he there as well? Yeah, he went to Pioneer High School. And um, and then bands like the MC5, who are actually from Downriver, Detroit, mm. maybe an hour's drive away, mm. moved to Ann Arbor right. as soon as they could, and because that's that was the energy center of it. And and Alice Cooper moved to Ann Arbor right before they be, they broke big. Right, you know when they they moved to Ann Arbor at the time of their second album, Easy Action. So what was University Town? What was the what was the magic of Ann Arbor? Why why was that the center? I don't know. Huh. Just was. And um you go on and on with things that happened there. But um Ted Nugent, Amboy Dukes. Wow. All of this. Um the SRC, the up, the you know what about the was where did the where did the Motown thing sit with while all this was going on? Where because that it was, was it was, was booming, right? Like just up the road. It was absolutely booming and it was in parallel with it. Right. The Motown thing was the commercial mm -hmm. side of it. Mm -hmm. And what was happening in Ann Arbor was the underground side of mm -hmm. it. Did those guys ever come and jab? But those amazing Motown musicians? No no, I don't think so. They didn't come down to no. I guess it was pretty pretty I don't know, it was pretty wild. It wasn't um, it wasn't top of the pops down in Ann Arbor. No, you know the Motown guys were. It was really a Detroit scene. Mm -hmm. Ann Arbor, Detroit, they're, they're different. I mean, it's they're very close. Yeah. You know the Air, Detroit airport is halfway between Detroit and Ann Arbor, mm -hmm. and it's it's like twenty minutes on either side. Yeah, that's how close it yeah. is. But it's so different as far as a place goes. Huh. You know, Ann Arbor being a small university town mm -hmm. when i grew up there it was a hundred thousand population mm -hmm. and out of that fifty thousand was students and this is where the wolverines were based this is the american football team that that's that university it's michigan university yeah yeah so i've been there i, mean, I told you i went to brighton my uncle used to live in, in yeah brighton, in brighton just up the up, up us 23 from ann arbor yeah but um but ann arbor is like this bohemian academic huh sort of center and mm -hmm. and detroit is hard working class yeah. uh factory town but um so very different culturally but and the motown guys were detroiters and mm -hmm. they uh 
from my understanding is that after sessions at Motown records, they would go to bars in Detroit and jam like places yeah. like Baker's keyboard lounge and places like that. Yeah. Okay. So, which we all appreciated and, and we love that music, mm-hmm. but it, it wasn't what we were no. doing. Okay. So just want to thought that just occurred to me and I don't want to get too personal. Um, but I believe that there's a period in everyone's life that they're, you know, as a, as a kind of, I suppose it's on the cusp of adulthood. I, I would say this is my, this is my hypothesis on the cusp of adulthood. There's a period, um, where music goes through the door, you know, in a way that it never goes through the door at any other point. We can still find great music. You know, there's still great stuff being recorded today, but there's this kind of period of time when I don't, it just, it's like neuroplasticity or something. It gets through to you. And I, I think if you listen, maybe if you listen to it for the first time now, it wouldn't have the same resonance for you for obvious reasons. You know, you're on the cusp of adulthood. So here's my question. You have children. I have children. My kids are younger than yours. I'm sort of cognizant of my responsibility to get the good stuff into their brains during their formative years. And I know kids have to find their own stuff and their own scene. Is that something that you ever thought about growing up? Like, okay, kids, you, you have to listen. This is the Stooges. This is important. You have to listen to it. No. You didn't do that? No. Okay, why? That's like the, you know, I just talk for 10 minutes and you go, no, that's the worst interview technique ever. See, I'm an, I'm an amateur. They were getting exposed to that stuff all the time. I, I mean, there was still... there was no reason that to say you have to listen to this because no, okay. they were listening to it anyway. Don't break my balls here. I'm saying, oh, you, so you were playing the stuff at home. You were they were still of course. well, I was playing stuff at home for me to listen okay, to, not okay. for them to listen. That's to. what I mean. That's what I mean. You're you're still exposed. You're not sitting. But there. I wasn't sitting them down and saying right. you have to pay attention to this. Okay. Like this is your homework. You have to learn about this. Is really important music. You have to know about this. No, I never did that okay. because I didn't expect them to. You know, they're they're a different generation. Mm-hmm. It'd be like my parents sitting me down and say, you know, you have to listen to Benny Goodman and and um, you know, and Gene Krupa is the greatest drummer in the world, and and you have to you have to listen to Artie Shaw, and and this stuff is really super important, and you have to listen to it. I wouldn't have listened to it. But take away the sentence, this stuff is important. You have to listen to it. But if they surround you with it during your your youth, it still gets in there. It's it still- gets in there. Yeah, it gets in there. But it it got into my daughter. Mm-hmm. But it didn't get into my son. Oh, what's he into? Uh, he likes. You're gonna love this. He likes uh, electronic uh, soundtracks of video games. Huh. He, lo- he actually gets the soundtrack. You know, records and listens to the soundtracks okay. of that and um, that kind of music. And he likes show tunes. Oh. like Les Miserables and things yeah. like that. He likes that stuff. That's cool. Yeah. I, I love some of that stuff. The American, great American songbook. And, and, and then the, um, you know, Rogers and Hammerstein and, uh, or the Gershwins, that kind of stuff. Yeah. That stuff's great. I mean, I, well, do you, do you not think it's great? I think it's great. You enjoy it. I, I mean, it's, it, I, I'm surprised that a young person would be into that, which uh-huh. sort of is like, to me, that's what an old person would. Yeah. I mean, I'm old now, but my conception of old is people who would like that stuff. Got it. Um, you don't think it was a bit of a this but, to you? Uh, no, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think he would bother 
doing that. You know, he wouldn't, he, he wouldn't, uh, he would just be, Max has always been a person who just sets his own course, mm-hmm. likes what he likes. That's it. I mean, he said to me on more than one occasion, dad, I really don't like your music. <laughs> um, oh shit. I got him into a few concerts when he was a kid and he, he sort of tolerated it, but he didn't think it was great. And, and, uh, he goes his own way. He's, he's his own, he's his own man. It sounds a little bit like someone else in the room. And, you know, and I, I respect that, well, but my right. daughter, my daughter has the same musical taste as uh-huh. I do. Uh-huh. She likes the same stuff as I do. Yeah. Okay. Right on. I've never met Max, but, um, and Hannah, Hannah plays guitar and, Oh yeah. And, and, um, of course, she sings and uh, she's oh. got a wonderful voice. Oh. She actually sounds like her mother. I'd like to hear that. I have to, if I meet Max, I'll have to speak to him about Andrew Lloyd Webber or something. I'll, you know, you got, anyway, music's music. Whatever's good is good. Yeah. Right. There's, and this is the other thing, actually, I've said this before when I've spoken to musicians. I think um, this kind of uh, blind, like, like the guys that would call you punk. There's people don't think sometimes too deeply about music, but I find musicians can find something in in what could easily be written off, you know, and put it, I don't know, Taylor Swift or, or whatever. Name a Bieber, whatever it is. Name something that's easily dismissed as this or that or pop. And most musicians will hear, you know, well, the production's pretty amazing in there. It's not for me. I don't really enjoy it, but I can appreciate what the bass player in that session did. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, you can appreciate elements of it, and sometimes you can appreciate the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I think Lady Gaga is amazing. Mm-hmm. I love her stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then going back, to, like you mentioned, Gershwin, um, pretty edgy for his time. Mm-hmm. Not, and as Brother Ira, the, some of those lyrics, mm-hmm. it ain't necessarily so. You listen to that song. That's amazing stuff. And look, you listen to the, some of those arrangements. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. Oh, is that, what, is that a line from that song? Yeah, it's a great song. Huh. I, the, the stuff that blows my mind is the, because you're, you're, like, you're like me, uh, you, you know, presumably you can pick up stuff, you can play, you hear something and you, oh, yeah, and you just pick it up and you can play because most stuff's really not that hard to get to the bottom of arrangement-wise before you get to jazz and kind of crazy inversions, but... The stuff that blows my mind is like the the big band stuff that goes behind Sinatra or that that kind of thing. And that stuff is the quality and technique is mind blowing. Mind blowing. It's never. I don't think anything's ever been like it again. But um, but yeah, it's, it's very. It's something to appreciate. Yeah, you like that stuff as well. The big band stuff. You know, I I, I'll say I appreciate it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't turn me on or anything mm-hmm. like that, but I, I, I can listen to it and appreciate the, what it took to make that music, mm-hmm. which is quite extraordinary. Oh, I'm with you. <clears throat> so, um, damn, I just, I guess we just went down a rabbit hole and we didn't go too deep into it, but I guess what I got was the Stooges, is the greatest album ever recorded in 1970, because it's the first song off the album and that, the best song on the album for you or just a- no just a good song on the album oh. it has i guess it has some of the elements that make the album great um you know it's got this wild sax solo at the end of the mm-hmm. song and, mm-hmm. and it's the great guitar playing and mm-hmm. fabulous everything 
was great about that song. And I wanted to, in case I forget to say later, I wanted to say sorry for your loss. I know you were good friends with, well, both the brothers, but I think especially Ron was a good friend of yours. Yeah, that's right. So I'm sorry for that. I know yeah. he passed. Yep. Tragically. Too young. Both of them did. Yeah, man. I know I was lucky enough to see him. And he, you know what I said? I, 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 now I'm going to be a dog. I got I got to see Iggy play it with those guys. Well, with, with certainly with Ron. I don't know who was on drums. Um, a few, 2005 something. It would have been, it had to have been Scotty. Yeah. yeah. So he was back on drums. Yeah. Oh man. Sydney, you know, big day out. Tina's brother was working there. So we were just there and I don't care for those big festivals, but they did this like 15 minute version of now I want to be a dog. And Iggy just went out into the crowd and, and all the time there was just, it was like, um, it was like a charm. It was like a, it was almost like, you know, like the, uh, the Indian mystics or the, you know, the, the, almost like the drone music, it, just that riff. Yeah, I was at that show. You were at the show too? Yeah. At the uh, Sydney showground? Yeah. At the <sighs> at the big day out. The big day out. Yeah. Was that- 2005. I mean, that blew my mind. It, it just blew my mind. I'd, I'd, I'd never, I've been to a ton of gigs to see that go on for 15 minutes and just, just feel the crowd go up and up and up. And it just didn't, it didn't stop. Was that a particularly good example of what they could do? Do you feel it was a good show? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Where were you backstage or something? Uh, yeah, back into the side. Yeah, you play that one? Hmm? Were you playing that gig? No, that's sh that that. No, thing? I was just a guest. Huh. What were they like? Sorry, we're gonna. Yeah, we, here's a rabbit hole. So okay, I wanted because that blew my mind. That that show was one of those ones for me, and I forget was it the White Stripes had to follow them. I think that. I just remember feeling so sorry for whoever the, the headline was that came on after. Yeah, I don't remember who it was. Oh, damn. I, I'm pretty sure it was the White Stripes and it sounded anemic. I felt so, I've never felt so sorry for it. Like it was like 90,000 people just went, oh. Because how do you follow? How do you follow Iggy and the Stooges doing that? I know. So tell me, okay, so as they came off stage or, or before they went on stage, were they just kind of, yeah, cool, or was were they elevated? Oh yeah, no, they're cool. They're, you know, they're vet, they're veterans. They're old soldiers. They've right. done this <laughs> done this a thousand times. Yeah, and uh, yeah, they're they're pumped. You know, but but cool. But if you've okay, and exactly what you just said. But if you've entered that positive feedback loop, that that's why we do it. Musicians live. You know, they give it to us. We give it to them. They give it to us. We give it to them. And they and you take that to ninety thousand or however many thousand that was seventy thousand I don't know, and you and you do and you get that energy and you know you've affected the lives of that many people. How the hell do you come down from that? I mean, they they got to have just floated off the stage. Yeah, I mean they, they uh, I, you know, I can only speak from my own experience yeah, on that. Please do. Um, if if it was a good show and and you you know you played well and you know the band played well and you know that the audience got off on it then it's a fantastic feeling yeah you're high for hours mm -hmm. after that yeah if it's if you played a you know i don't know if i ever played a ninety thousand. definitely played to 70 when i played with the mc5 and wow. and Damn. and in Bert radio birdman we've played to crowds of 20 and 30 and 40. Yeah. And, um, and if it's not good, it, the downer is just as bad as the high. Mm -hmm. It can be. Yeah. 
yeah, I guess it amplifies the the response, you know, whatever the response is, if it's good or bad, it's amplified by a huge number of yeah. witnesses like that. I mean, forget sleep, right? You, you, Not for a while. There's no yeah. way you're going to sleep after that for, for hours. Hours. But that's like that for me at any show. I yeah. mean, if I come off stage at one o'clock in the morning, I'm not going to be sleeping until yeah. four or five. Oh, God. And then everything aches. You can't sleep anyway because your, your muscles are aching. I've seen the way you play guitar. Yeah. Well, that's not so much a problem for me. Oh, yeah? yeah. You don't get sore after playing? I'm stiff the next morning. Mm -hmm. After playing, I'm not oh. not sore at all. It's just like too much adrenaline. You don't. Yeah. Anything that was bothering you before going on is mm. gone. Oh, yeah. By the time you finish. Yeah. Aches, pains, everything. But I've, you know, wake up the next morning and I can't make a fist with yeah. my left hand and yeah. fingers are so stiff yeah. and, and um, you know, back hurts and all that. But then you get to the next place and do that this again the next night. You, and, yeah. And you do, don't you? You turn around to show in 24 hours. You did that last one in Melbourne. I think you played two in a row, didn't you? Yeah, and in um, Friday, Saturday, in April this year, I played uh, thirty-two shows in thirty days, Oof. all in different cities. We okay? Yeah, it got stronger as it went along. Uh, it's good. You get on a roll. Yeah, you keep going. Yeah, you might not know where you are, but <laughs> or you know anything like remember much about it. But it's. But it's it wasn't a problem. That's Europe. That was the European one. Yeah. This year, I get this really. I get these achy legs. I just anyway, it's not me. Um. All right. Um. Because you get more fit as you go along. You know. You, mm -hmm. you. Um. I think doing you know playing a busy on a busy tour. Yeah. It, it's better at the, towards the end than at the beginning. Because it's like surfing the first time you. You can barely paddle out in the waves. Yeah, and yeah. After a while, the body's an amazing thing, right? You just adapt. it adapts to it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, song two. So that's one hour per song right now. So we're going to be seven hours doing this thing. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Den's Den's shaking his head at me. I'm sorry, man. I figure we've got we've got a few more stories left in us. Second song, you can wave by Antonio Carlos. Do you say? Jobim or Jobim. Jobim. Uh, Brazilian? Brazilian. He sort of invented Bossa Nova. Uh-huh. And uh and that's the beat of it. And keyboard player. Mm -hmm. And uh you know, it's like that Brazilian jazz, Stan Gatz kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. He he wrote Jobim wrote The Girl from Ipanema. Oh, really? Yeah. And uh, he's very famous and prolific uh songwriter composer and and band leader in brazil and uh that that album wave i think comes from the late 60s um you picked uh mojave as the as, as the, the track tra the track yeah and the, and do you remember the reason you you told me for picking that track and that album you're on a space station by the way so i think it's a great choice to lighten the mood yeah, well, it's uh, it's yeah, it changes the mood of everything you're doing, mm -hmm. and it's it's you know, I always have cocktail time. It's at uh, between six and six thirty. Oh yeah, yeah, it's traditional. Oh, and so <laughs> I don't know how often that comes around on a space station, but but uh, yeah, it's a, not often. It's good to have appropriate cocktail lounge music for for that kind of thing. I, I mean, I love just, you while you're thinking. 
Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, to me, the cocktail time is really important because it, um, it demarcates between the work day and the rest of the day yeah, yeah, or the night. And, and, you know, and the day is usually work, even if you're on tour, the day is work because mm -hmm. the day is getting up too early, mm -hmm. going down to the, getting your stuff in your bag, going down to the lobby, finding coffee, getting in the van and then riding in a van all day and then doing a sound check. That's all work. And then the rest of the, the other half is the fun part. Mm -hmm. So what's great about cocktail time is it, it's the, it's the dividing line between those two things. Mm -hmm. So you'll have cocktail. And, and it, you know, and even if you're not on tour, if like if I'm just sitting around here at home, I'm working through the day mostly yeah. doing work. I'm either reading medical stuff, um, you know, doing paperwork, working out, running, whatever I'm doing It's it's they're practicing the guitar, right. You know, working on songs, whatever it is. And then at night, then it's, everything opens up mm -hmm. you relax you're gonna have cocktail hour tonight of course <laughs> maybe we should put this song on for it So you still have cocktail hour before you go on, like you'll have a cocktail before, just before you go on stage because you don't want to have cocktail, then go into that horrible post 
drink kind of drowsy, sleepy just before you go on stage? Yeah, what I like to go on stage with a like a double coffee, mm. double shot mm-hmm. of espresso, mm-hmm. yeah, and, uh, yeah, and maybe a shot of vodka, mm-hmm. and then that's enough for me. This is as well as cocktail hour or grappa if I'm in Italy. Okay. Yeah, this is before going on stage. Yeah, yeah. That, that's different. But you'll have had your cocktail out already, and then there'll be another pre-stage ritual. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Which is some, several hours later anyway. Yeah. So by then, it's, you know, it's diff- It's it's not stacking. No. You know, you're not you, breath no. stacking yeah, like yeah. you have the ventilator <laughs> yeah, settings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But this is like, so what I, I guess what I was getting at is that you can get that post-alcohol ennui where you just feel flat and kind of a bit low. If you're not careful, so I yeah. Guess you'll but get re- remember that when I say cocktail time, I'm not I'm not like downing like ten cocktails. No, it's like one. I'm like having either. one or two. Yeah, it's it's more the ritual than the getting yeah. getting uh, than the alcohol. I got it for me. Um, I'm on those days. I, I know exactly what you mean. That so yeah. you know, just one or two is enough, and yeah. then and then. And then later on, like you say, if you do if you do drink a lot in the day, it's going to be you it flattens you out. Yeah, don't like that. Yeah, and um, but yeah, coffee's important. Yeah, just, just hit before to, going on yeah. stage. Yeah, yeah, for me, yeah. for me anyway. Magical stuff. It's usually by by the time we're about to getting ready to go on is about the time I want to go to bed. Yeah. So you do something. You do another ritual, which is associated with waking up. Mm-hmm. which is coffee yeah and that's all that's good for you there's yeah. nothing else you, what else do you do because that's the thing that's exactly what you just said it's like damn we're on stage at 11 o'clock tonight or you know or 12 or one yeah and you know you feel like you feel tired you want to go to bed it's the wrong circadian rhythm yeah so so yeah you know it's and again it's not so much the caffeine content of it although that does help mm. It's the ritual yeah. of it uh-huh. that gets you in the right mindset. Mm-hmm. I'm waking up. I'm going to go do something. And you have a nap? You're a nap, a nap guy? You have a daytime or an afternoon power nap or siesta? Uh, not usually. Mm. If, I'm, if I get to, the, to a point of sleep deprivation mm. that requires it, then I will. Mm. But, but typically I don't. You're a machine. Okay. Well, let's... Um, this night's move back to young Dennis again. Cause I, I, I don't know. I'm sure you've been through this a while with, with a ton of other interviewers, but we've never discussed much about, I guess what I was talking to you about, come back from the beach a little bit about, you know, that thing about ambition and drive and where drive comes from. And you told me that you, you think it must be genetic, which yeah. leads to an obvious question about the old man and about, about mom and about your, your brothers and that whole thing. So can you paint a picture there? Uh, my dad was, uh, I was a firstborn. Mm-hmm. So uh, father uh, migrant to America from Turkey, mm-hmm. engineering professor, mm. um, tennis player. Um, tennis player as in good top level university standard kind of yeah competitive yeah competitive yeah played and for turkey or anything like that played for the national team or anything no no, no but his father did oh my grandfather you met him yeah i met him but i was very young mm-hmm. I mean, he he 
he died when I was about six. Mm-hmm. Memories of him? Very little. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's I'm already getting you. And he it, demanded that you know we study hard and get good grades and 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 you know the immigrant thing. Yeah, yeah, right. Demand, well. Demanded um, hard work, especially in America. Anyone that works hard is going to succeed. Kind of yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah. So, all right, I'm going to sketch a. And my brother's, you know, my brother, one of my brothers uh, is a pilot. Active pilot now? Yeah, active now. He he did 30 years in the U.S. Air Force. And and then that's mandatory retirement at at that level. Mm -hmm. And then he went to work for Lockheed Martin aircraft company and yeah so he could still continue flying fighters in his old age wow that's what he's doing still doing now. test pilot no instructor pilot oh uh, yeah he's when they sell f uh, f-16s to to um other countries yeah they they um an instruction package is part of the deal right um not basic flight instruction how to fly an airplane but it's it's how to fly and fight the f-16 in a combat environment you know combat fighter tactics using the f-16 systems is what he teaches and so he goes to well he was in iraq for four months um earlier this year and uh because the new iraqi government bought f-16s and um and then back at in Air, he lives in Arizona, mm-hmm. and they they send pilot, contingents of pilots over there, like from Thailand or yeah. Jordan or places like that. And wow. he he trains them. How many flying hours does he have? He has a lot of hours. I can't tell you the exact number, but he there's a website you can go to from at Lockheed that has the ten highest uh, number of hours in yeah. the F sixteen. <gasps> And he's number two. Oh my goodness! That's he's amazing. Number, he's number two on that list. Yeah. He's in a very exclusive club, right? Yeah, wow. I, I think probably six thousand, maybe something like that Oof. hours. And this is which in, is a lot in a fighter. I mean, this it's, is all in. That's not a lot for an airline pilot, but it's sure. But for a fighter pilot in that particular kind of airplane, that's yeah. a lot of hours. Oh man, how old is he now? How old is he? Yeah, he will be turning sixty uh next year and he's the middle brother of the three is that right you got is there three of you? yeah yeah and is then there's one younger than one him. younger and he's is he a he's also a he's, no he lives in ann Arbor. he's a he's a uh runs his own business out of his house uh-huh. in ann arbor but you're all three guitarists though right yeah mm-hmm. so i've got to ask you know, without, and I haven't looked into this at all, but your career as a, as a pilot, as a, as a, well, my brother, yeah, uh, Kurt, my, the middle one, yeah, Keith Richards clone, the way he plays, yeah, the youngest one is more started off with like the Van Halen kind of thing, yeah, yeah, and then, uh, but now more Hendrixy, huh, and he does that stuff, but he can still pull out the double handed tapping if yeah, he needs to, he, yeah. Is it competitive Not with you guys? Not that anyone would ever need to. But. <laughs> oh, well, you know, Van Halen tribute band. Yeah. Competitive, no. Because I just want to set up a, a scenario and then test it with you. 
because I don't know the time scales, so this is a total guess, but I'm going to say that you became a doctor and at some point you just, you went back and then, then you went into the U S Navy, um, and, and became a pilot Well, you did the flight surgeon and then a pilot and you, then your middle brother was already a pilot with the U S air force at the time. Yeah. He was already a, a pilot. In fact, it was, it was him doing that, that put it in my head to do it. Right. And was he supportive of a like, Oh, come on, you're already a rock star and I'm, and a doctor, you really need to do this? Or was it like, yeah, Dan, you can do this? Yeah, totally supportive. Huh. Yeah. Do you remember the conversation? Was it a conversation? See, we're all, all of us brothers are six years apart. So oh. my youngest brother, Carl, is um, he was only 12 years old when, um, or 11 years old when I left home. Mm -hmm. So I sort of had, I never knew him all that well, but I caught up with him later and we were very close now. Close. Mm-hmm. But what what was the conversation like? Was there a I don't know a, a Thanksgiving one day at the tech house back home, and you and, and you're speaking to what's your middle brother? It's Carl's the Carl's the younger, yeah, and Kurt is the middle, yeah. And you and Kurt, and you're sitting there finishing off the turkey or whatever it is, and you, and you go, you know, I think I think I'll try this this whole armed forces stuff. No, I, I um he was he was in, uh, at a training base down in Texas. Mm -hmm near Del Rio. Uh -huh. And I went down to visit him and he showed me around the flight line and showed me the airplanes and stuff like that. And I think that's when I said, yeah, you know, this is really cool. I, I, would, I, I could do this. Uh, you know, I could, uh, I may uh, try to do this and I love it. He goes, yeah, great. I love it. I just love that. I can do this. And, and you made it happen. Yeah. So, you're living in Sydney and practicing medicine or you're in Montana at this stage? Oh no. Um, I had, I, I only did, well, I finished medical school in Sydney and, and then went to the UK for, with the band. Mm -hmm. And then when the band broke up, came back to Sydney, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I actually did my internship up in Newcastle Oh, and as did Pip. And after internship, I went back to America and I did okay. uh, so residency. some more training, residency training there. And then um, from there, I went into the Navy. So how many years was residency in, in America? I did, I did uh, two years there and then I went into the Navy. And uh, I, I'm not special, especially qualified at this point. Yeah. And I went to the Naval Aerospace Medicine Institute and did their training program and then flight school, Pensacola. Right. And then and then I went to um, out into the fleet and I worked as a flight surgeon for the next, um, I don't know, three, three tours or whatever. And then I did, um, I came back and did uh, emergency medicine fellowship training. Okay, so you weren't so emergency wasn't your thing then. So just but explain to me and everyone else what the distinction is between like flight flight surgeon means you're not flying planes, but you're looking after all of the the crew, and then you but then you also did pilot training. Well, in the Navy, in the U.S. Navy, uh, they put flight surgeons through pilot training. Oh, okay, and and, um, and the at least they did in those days. I don't know if they still do, but the um, the feeling was that you would understand the environment 
and the and that and that being air crew in the squadron where you are assigned the as one of the air crew the pilots trust you more okay because they know that you know what they do there's and two, how important two, it is there's and, two per plane two two humans in each plane well that depends on what kind of plane it is mm. well, i'm just thinking of top gun now you know that i'm thinking of Iceman and or i'm thinking of goose and maverick you know there's one guy behind and one guy in front those are f-14s uh tomcats uh-huh the the kind of jets that we, i was in in the fleet were phantoms mm. previous generation to that okay and, and well there was some overlap time-wise but earlier jet and it was also back to front yeah the same, same cockpit configuration can you fly one with one person though yeah you can can you do that yeah i can do that also flew training jets uh ta4s and yeah and the, the um the a4 has a single uh seat version mm-hmm. and a two-seat version um all phantoms are two-seaters and they start you in propellers though before you move to jets turboprop explain that please it's a jet with a propeller on it. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. Um, T-34C okay. was the training airplane that you do primary mm-hmm. in the Navy in mm-hmm. those days. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they still use them. Do you remember how hard it was to to get the, you know, because not everyone can, right? Not everyone can fly a plane. It takes a degree of coordination and balls and everything else do you remember the do you remember trying to get used to it and going I don't know if i'm going to be able to do this like first solo flight first you know first this first that. first so first solo was exciting <laughs> exciting that's that's exciting and <clears throat> it was flight number 14 this was a solo mm. so you already had 13 training flights with an instructor that's not many well that's that's enough that's enough sounds pretty good but they when i you know they they had um coming back to the field you know you you enter a landing pattern Mm -hmm. and and land in a certain way and you know there's an initial point that you have to be at and then you go to this other place and talk to the tower or you talk to approach control and then they hand you off the tower and then you land on the runway. Um, and all my 13 flights had been the, in the same pattern. Mm. And on my solo, the, uh, the, the weather and the wind was different. And by the time I came back to the, to the field to land, they were using a very unusual and different landing pattern that I hadn't seen before. Oh my God. So that was the anxious thing for me. It was like, now how do I do this? Wait a minute. You know, I'm, I had it all worked out, you know, all pre-planned and I did rehearsed it in my head so many times to do it this one way. And then you had, I had to improvise something. On in a the, turboprop or a, in a turboprop. Is that where the phrase winging, but, winging it comes from? But without the, yeah, I guess so. But without the instructor in the back. Oh my God. So you could have uh, died very easily. Yeah. I, you know, I could have messed up and 
got a bad grade very very easily. <laughs> a bad grade. I wasn't going to ever die. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, I might have landed in the wrong direction, or okay. done a Harrison Ford or something. Got you know, yeah, or or uh, I might have um, interfered with other yeah, traffic yeah, or on. stepped on somebody else's Oof. pattern, or you know, did something like dropping in on somebody surfing when you don't want to. Yeah. Might have done something like that, but I wasn't ever going to die. Because you had the ability. You knew you could land on a flat surface. Oh, yeah, I, could land. Was, I knew I could yeah. land the plane. Yeah. It's just getting to the, going around the, the wrong way and landing the opposite direction. And, um, but that yeah. was the only anxiety I ever yeah. experienced in it. I, I thought flying was really fun. And, mm-hmm. and uh, there was never a, a point when I thought I couldn't do it. Mm. And then I flew, I got my civilian license too. So oh. I, go out recreationally with my wife and yeah and we'd fly around and wow. when, when we were based in hawaii we'd f- fly to the other islands for weekend trips and things like that wow. and rent airplanes and yeah. when i was living in san diego we'd fly out into the desert and land oh. on a, land on a dirt strip in the middle of nowhere and amazing have a picnic and then fly back you know was, oh. we used to do stuff like that wow i'm asked, i'm reading a book at the moment about a world war ii flying ice you know Jeffrey Markham, Paul, if I got it wrong, I'm sorry. A friend of mine gave me this book and, you know, the reason I ask, the reason I know a little bit is because, because you know, he's taken you through as a, he was a 17-year-old boy on like, you know, August 1939. He enlisted in the RAF and there you go and then they're at war three weeks later and just the, the, the progression through the different types of um, planes and the going solo and, you know, I imagine there's a like just like the rock and roll line that goes through Keith and Iggy and you. There's a there's a flying line as well, right? There's yeah, a, yeah. You know that situation. They accelerate the training so fast and put these kids up there, and that's really, I guess, you know, like you said, uh, winging it is one expression, and then fl- by the seat, flying by the seat of your pants is yeah. another expression. Yeah. It's just like, no, nah, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> just figure it out on the, uh, figure it out as you go. I'll do it. You know, it'd be like, it'd be like if you were an intern and, yeah. and, and, and you'd never intubated anybody before and you, and you, and you were, you got, you went out to a rural hospital to yeah. get some training in a rural hospital and you're there and the guy doesn't, and the doc, you know, the, the supervising doctor doesn't show up. And then a, a major trauma comes in that has to be intubated and you've never done it before, but you, you would do it. I mean, that's because you've seen somebody do it. That's, that's the reality. Well, it used to be the reality, especially in Australia anyway. You know, you mentioned, I, can't I did my internship in Australia yeah, in, yeah. In, in 1978. We may have gone to the same place because my experience of, of what you just described was, was that, um, you mentioned the hospital earlier on, um, between Gosford and Newcastle, um, no, no, sorry, above Newcastle, um, Tari, 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 yeah. Remember that place? Well, yeah, I never been to that hospital. Okay, um, but it was the classic Australian. Yeah, you could as a first or second year out from med school with totally wet behind the ears. There could be an enormous pileup on that Pacific freeway, and yeah. Well, I worked at the Mater Hospital and and in, in Newcastle. Mm-hmm. 500 beds yeah and between midnight and eight in the morning mm. just the intern in the ed one intern and you know of course you could call somebody yeah but 
you never did because it was considered a sign of weakness if you had to call somebody. Because right. there was a there was a um, there was a surgical uh, <clears throat> resident and a medical resident mm-hmm. sleeping in the hospital mm-hmm. overnight. Yeah, but God forbid that you would ever call them. Oh my goodness! Yeah. Um, or call a consultant for that matter. Uh, so you just handled everything overnight. Yeah. And, um, I had that Washington manual, you know, you ever yeah. heard of the Washington mm-hmm. manual? It's like this man, it's like this cookbook manual for house officers, right. an American and, um, had it in my white coat pocket all the time. And whenever anything came in, if I could figure out what yeah. it was that the person had, I would just look up the page in the book yes. and it would have these bullet points yeah. do yeah. this 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 and this okay third okay if you know if the rate if the heart rate is yeah. 25 yeah. and 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 the complexes are wide yeah. and, and it's regular give um isoproterenol yeah. <laughs> and that happened and i did that oh you did it and and the rate picked up man this is pretty cool and this could uh, be in a doctor yeah, it's good. Yeah. And and then when the uh morning team came and this person was put in the CCU, the cardiologist said, That's good, you did the right thing. How did you know how to do that? Mm-hmm. I said, well, I got this book here called The Washington Manual and it tells you what to do. Mm-hmm. Oh good. He didn't know that way. For us it was the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine. That was the it was this yellow plastic thing that used to live in the white coat pocket but it, you know that the, the the uk and I, I don't know the american experience but i think australia's i mean it used to be a huge good thing i think now that the way things are the juniors are really intimidated by it but it was the thing that you said and and you know i believe that the resilience you know comes to you when you've been through the fire yeah you know yeah that's right and that was the experience everywhere in australia you're in the, there's a tiny hospital and guess what you're it yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's, I think it's, um, a va- it was a valuable experience for yeah. me to go through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, you, working very long hours, yep. you know, 80 hour, 90, hundred hour weeks. And, um, even then after seeing that many patients, I, I think that after I became a consultant and, and um, got my FACEP and started working full-time clinical as an emergency physician, I still didn't really feel comfortable Mm -hmm. with everything Mm -hmm. for about 15 years. Mm -hmm. I think it took about 15 years Mm -hmm. after training for Mm -hmm. me to think, yeah, I could probably handle just about anything that comes in the door. And... um, and then, and then it gets better from there. But the first 15 years is pretty scary. Yeah, I think it's more, I don't know. I mean, I, I did some sums about the, um, who did the, is it Gladwell? Gladwell did the 10,000 hours to become an expert thing. Who's that, that American uh, psychologist guy? I may have it wrong. I can look. I heard about that. You know that thing? I heard about that theory. 10,000 hours. I think I worked it out. I think I've, I think I'm at around about, well, in numbers of patients, I think I'm about 30,000 patients just in my career. So I guess add on another 20 years, 
to, for you um, and who knows how many hours. And there, yeah, I don't know about the 15 years. I never thought about it taking 15 years, but that's from med school. That, But that sounds about right. Yeah. Kinda, but I think nowadays it might be longer because mm-hmm. they, they don't see as many patients sure. as trainees as sure. they used to. Sure. And you see them with, with a kind of comfort blanket wrapped around you at the same time. Right. Um, many layers of blankets. Many. Oftentimes. I'm just not comfortable doing this procedure. Okay. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to refill my water bottle. And so uh, while I'm, yeah, I know, man. What are we at, 16 hours yet? I'm having so much fun. I hope this is okay. Um, I just, I, okay, I guess I want to just get through the the songs just to just to tick them off the list. Yeah. Um, I mean, we listened to this before. I think we started rolling or at the start anyway. So, but just take me take me through why you picked this Stone song and why this album out of all of the ones that you could pick. Which I know, are they, are they, would you still? Are they your favorite band? Oh yeah, I don't know. It's it, favorites are hard. It's hard. That's a hard question. <clears throat> mm-hmm. They might be my favorite band today and not tomorrow. Yeah, one. They're definitely up there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I when I saw the Stones in '69 uh, in Detroit at um, at a hockey stadium, mm-hmm. um, tickets were eight bucks, and. Uh, you could get right down. You could put your elbows on the stage. Um, it was fantastic. This is pre Altamont. It, it, yeah, it was about two weeks before Altamont. It, it was like two days before Yaya's was recorded in, at Madison Square Garden, and they were just—they must have been just mixing. It was in the uh, middle of that tour, that same tour. Yeah, they were just, didn't they? Didn't they, when they mix in like sticky fingers or something and then they flew across to Altamont or something like that? No, they had a, after the, yeah, after the tour finished in, down in Florida, they had, um, they had a couple of days. And (laughs) in those days, because of union rules, they couldn't, if you were on tour in America, you couldn't record. And if you were recording, you couldn't tour. Huh. So they wanted to find a place, out of the way place, and record in secret. They, they, the band was hot because they were at the end of a tour. Yeah. And they wanted to record a couple of songs, and they had they had a couple of days before that Altamont concert. So they went to uh, Muscle Shoals, Shoals, and they recorded Brown Sugar and Wild Horses, oh. and. Like nobody knew that they were down there, and the, and the it was um, worked out great. I heard a story about some. You probably know the guy, but um, you can see footage of that that session in the oh. in the movie. Um, if you look at the documentary movie by the Maisley's brothers, Cross get, Heart. it's called Gimme Cross. Shelter. Oh yes, yeah, sure, sure, sure. Sorry, yeah. There's there's uh, very good footage of them in that studio doing that work. So there was a guy, some guy they called into uh, a writer that they called in. It, like it was, I heard that about the top secret thing, and no one was supposed to know they were there. But kind of, some guy got invited into the studio. I don't know if it was to write a piece of the Rolling Stone or whatever it was, but but it was a very small session. Um, yeah, well, um, Jim Dickinson found out about it one way or the other, and he and he got invited down there, and he ended yeah. up playing piano. 
Uh, uh, yes. Because Nicky yeah. Hopkins wasn't there. So yeah. he, he played piano on, um, on Wild Horses. Yeah. That's the story. Yeah. And your connection with Jim Dickinson? None. None? Other, uh, just read his, just, or just read what he wrote about it. Okay. And so this isn't the story that we discussed that's got the, the sting in the tail that I never heard before. I don't know if we, I don't know if it's for public consumption about the recording of Gimme Shelter, which is your choice from Let It Bleed. Um, you want to, you want to just retell that one about the, 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 to this day, I think one of the great vocal performances in the history of recorded music by the, by the lady that got called oh, to the studio. Mary Clayton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mary Clayton was, they, you know, the studio rang her in the, in the middle of, they were recording at Olympic and they rang her in the middle of the night to come in and do the session. And said, you know, would you want to come in and do a Stones session? And she can't, she got woke up and her husband did drive her into the studio in the middle of the night and, and did, she did that vocal and um, really belted it out. And as you can hear, and then she had a miscarriage. I think it was like the, either the next day or two days later. Yeah. Never heard that. Whether that had anything to do with, you know, yeah. with the, uh, with having done that session or not, who yeah. knows? But yeah. of course it's the, the apocryphal story yeah. is that it caused it. Yeah. But it probably didn't cause it as you and I know, it was probably a blighted ovum or whatever. Yeah. Where does that fit with the, um, the timeline of the stones, the give me shelter and the, the um, let it bleed, which, which year are we talking for this? 69. This is 69. And you'd just seen them in Ann Arbor? In Detroit. In Detroit. Yeah. And not, and not long after, they come out with this. Yeah, well, that was the, that's right. The um, the album was released at the time of that tour mm -hmm. in 1969. Mm -hmm. And, and that, was, that was the Let It Bleed tour. Yeah. And that was the first tour that they had done since 66. Oh. They didn't tour in 67 or 68. Keith had some legal troubles in the states. Yeah, um, they well, they had been busted for drugs, so they they couldn't get visas, mm -hmm. and um, and then they could. They finally, their attorneys finally worked it out where they did get reinstated and got visas, but mm. but then Brian didn't want to go, mm. and uh, so that was one of the main reasons by from what from my reading it, i have no direct knowledge of this but from reading keith's book and and other sources one of the main reasons why um why brian left the band was because they said well we're going to tour mm. whether you want to go or not we're, mm. we're going we need to go back to america mm. and uh and by then Brian was out of it anyway. He was, yeah. he was having problems and he was doing other things and he wasn't into it. And, and, and so he left and, um, I guess Mick and Keith went over to his house and they discussed it and they said, well, they, you're out then. And he goes, yeah, I guess I'm out. And, and they hired Mick Taylor immediately. Mm. And two weeks later they did a concert at Hyde Park with Mick Taylor and, um, and right. I think the day before that concert, Brian died. Mm. That's the white butterflies. Yeah. That was in July, I think of, mm. of 69. Mm -hmm. And then in November, they, November, December was the tour mm -hmm. 
of America that, that I attended. And it was the concert that I saw was, was fabulous and, and, and Mm -hmm. really a life changing experience for me to, uh, to connect with that energy of the Rolling Stones at that time. I was already a big fan of the Stones. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to see the Stones, but, uh, but I, it far exceeded my expectations. Describe, put it, try and put into words like what that, like how, how did, how did they blow your mind? How was it such a, I don't know. They were just so good and, and, and so perfect and, and, and doing the songs that were so, that, that I loved and doing them so well. And Mm. with that much power, it was just overwhelming. Never seen anything like it. Power, volume power? Well, not just volume. Well, there was a lot of volume for sure, but, Mm. but I was already seeing the MC5 and the Stooges and, and, uh, (laughs) pretty loud, you know, and Johnny Winter. And I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of other great musicians at that time. Uh, Janis Joplin, big brother in the holding company and, and, um, you know, and, uh, cream and, and, but the stones was way above any of that stuff. Yeah. They were, they were like way out there. And, and, um, so I, I left that, that concert just, uh, totally high on the music and that since that album was the album of that tour it's always been a special album for me okay so i'm gonna go back i was a bit clunky with this before that, that you know that thing about exposing your children to music and the, the difference i mean it's not force feeding them but surrounding them and having music be such a big part of them i guess this is another thing like you came out of that a change man like you know there's a, there's an equivalent to that that sort of apocryphal story about 20 soon to be famous musicians that were all at the Manchester gig at the free trade hall when the, when the sex pistols played there in 76 and, you know, the joy division guys were there and the, whoever there was, you know, there's these, there's these, it's almost like a cancer, you know, in a good way, a metastasis goes there. And then from that spreads Yeah, that my, my clumsy analogy, but you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. But, you know, on that day, you were how old? You were 17, um, 16, 17? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I just turned, maybe just turned 17. Okay. Yeah. So you're, you're, that's right. Because my birthday's in November. So yeah. Happy I, birthday, I, by the way. I would, thank you. I, I would have just been 17 for like a week. Okay. Yeah. So this is, by any objective measure, your right pickings for having your mind blown. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the, that moment, right? Is that's it objectively looking back like you just said you just reeled off six seven greats and you said the stones were just head and shoulders above cream you know that oh, stands yeah. out in my mind but how much i thought that, the mc5 was yeah absolutely killed that cre- was the, uh, oh yeah, yeah cream at the well, they were famous for that weren't they for just blown away but anyway the you know how much well you know what i'm getting at like you go there now you go you the time machine you go exactly to that moment in time, in that place, in that concert, and listen to it as the man you are now, you know, is it the same experience? Were they that good? Was it just, or was it, was, was your 17 year old brain part of that? I don't know. It's, that's an impossible question to answer, but, but what I can tell you is that when I see film of that tour, Mm -hmm. it takes me back to that Mm -hmm. same feeling. Yeah. It, it just, it seems just as good. I mean, it's, it hasn't dated itself at all. Does this song take you back? Give me yeah. shelter. Oh yeah, totally. What is it about this song? 
it's it has some it, there's some mojo in the yes, rhythm yes in the in the way the drums are working off the shakers yes because there's those shakers going and 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 the and the 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 rhythm guitar it's the way those three things work together yeah. is just this amazing creates this amazing compelling polyrhythm in the back yeah. and and it propels it along and then you've got this harmonica playing which I still don't have no idea how it's done. I mean, you try to play that harmonica part sometime. It, it's bizarre. There was some studio stuff going on with that, wasn't there? Some kind of loop echo thing or... Just a reverb. Was it? It's just going through a reverb. You know, the other amazing harmonica on that album is on Midnight Rambler. The harmonica yeah. playing is just extraordinary. Yeah. I've I've never been able to figure it out. It's all Mick though, right? It's all Mick Jagger. Yeah, yeah. So, so Brian sorry. Jones was a wonderful harmonica player too, mm -hmm. but but when Mick took over on harmonica, he just he took it to some new place. Oh. Sorry, I rudely so keep going, keep going. So you have got the polyrhythms, you've got the 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 harmonica that's otherworldly. I I I I remember as a kid they used it for some advert. They the Stones licensed it for some advert on the television. It was like something to do with road safety or something. Can't remember. In England, anyway. This is like the eighties in England, I guess. And I just remember hearing the the sound do 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 do. Hearing that, you know, that that little riff at the start. Yeah. Not the not the do 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 not the soloy bit, but the, that I guess Keith playing that just like little yeah. kind of syncopated. Yeah. And I, I it it didn't even seem like a guitar to me at the time. It also was, he's going through a um he's going through what I think is probably a uh a D'Armond tremolo control. Right. Like an old Right. That's what's giving it that warble, that tremolo that Yeah. The D the D'Armond is um it's a mechanical tremolo. Oh. So it, that, it has this vial of liquid in it, inside it, inside the pedal that that right. shifts back and forth and wow and and changes the impedance and and uh, you can't you know no digital treble or a tremolo unit s sounds like that. I mean it's it's just this weird sound. Is water involved? There's actually water involved. In yeah, it's it's liquid. actually it's not water. It's it's like the stuff. It's like window cleaner. Oh, because if you have one of those pedals, they tend to dry out over decades. And if you want to recharge the little vial inside with liquid, they recommend using Windex. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's a great little story. The Almond, like they made pickups as well, the Almond? Yeah. Huh. There's an old electronics company in America. I was I was just recording uh, in, in Montana in July and... And I was, uh, my friend, Bob Brown, the producer, he has one of those pedals. And oh. I said, I want to use this pedal. He goes, it's, it's dry and it needs Windex. Needs Windex. And I, <laughs> I said, I said, well, let's put some Windex in the damn thing. He goes, yeah, but you need a syringe and a needle to put it in. And they won't give one to me at the pharmacy. I can help. You said <laughs> I can, I can fix that. <laughs> what do you mean? They get smack packs at every hospital. Oh, do they not do that in America? They don't give out smack packs at the, at the triage. Not in Montana. Ooh, still Bible Belt? Cowboys and Indians, oh. not Bible Belt. No one takes drugs up there, just oxycodone. Just methamphetamine and yeah. uh, alcohol. The good stuff. Oxycodone. Hillbillies.
Okay, yeah. you don't. There isn't really amazingly lack of heroin there. It's just not a drug that's culturally known there. People don't shoot meth; they just smoke it or ingest yeah. it or whatever. Huh. Okay, well, I mean, some of them do, of course, but oh, well, if anyone's listening from Montana, you're missing out, guys. Um, all right, so give me shelter. Though, if you're listening to this, the millions of you that are, um. Back before I got to a thousand episodes, this was still in the first bunch of ten. And um, Dennis Tech, my friend, um, who's just looked at his watch again, is um, <laughs> almost cocktail time. You can have a cocktail while we do this. That would be cool. Yeah, too much like work. Huh. Oh, oh, that cuts. That just stabbed me in the heart. Well, it wasn't meant to. Okay, so he just gave us our third song. Well, let's just okay. Well, then let's just go because we're not going to listen. So what I'm saying is, guys, pause this. Take what Dennis just said, which believe me, is um, is is um, hard won and valuable um, words of wisdom about what what went into give me shelter, and also what you need to do to restore a, the Armand oh. Tremolo pedal. <laughs> what are you guys out there with Windex the and a syringe? I'm sure there's loads of those around. <laughs> I've never even heard it. So I thought I'd heard of most pedals. So Windex and the Diamond pedal for you guys. But pause, get yourself a cup of tea or a cocktail like Dan. And listen to Gimme Shelter.
and track four, we got Bob Dylan. I wasn't really expecting Dylan. I don't know why. I've always been a Dylan fan. Mm. Um, From Blood on the Tracks, I mean, which there's a there's a huge volume of later stuff that I don't like, mm-hmm. but but um, and I thought after uh, you know after the great um, album Blonde on Blonde, I thought that was going to be pretty much it for Bob Dylan. I thought he was finished because I didn't really care for the you know Nashville skyline. Mm-hmm. I, John Wesley Harding was okay. Uh, but Blood on the Tracks was an exceptionally great album, and and, and to me it redeemed Bob Dylan. It's, it's like Bob Dylan is back, and this is it just doesn't get any better than this. What year is this? 74 or 5. Mm-hmm. And why did you pick – well, I know because you wrote it down, but tell the listeners why you picked Idiot Wind. Uh, I just had to pick something. I mean, they're all good tracks on there. Mm-hmm. And Idiot Wind has uh, – you know, the thing about Bob Dylan – is the lyrics. Mm-hmm. You know, you look through those albums, there's different things that are, you know, one album is fantastic musically. You know, one album is fantastic for being relaxing and having, you know, and then but Bob Dylan album is for the lyrics. Mm-hmm. His, his poetry is so incredible. Yeah. And the song Idiot Wind has some of the best lyrics. They're mm-hmm. all, they're all good though. I mean, I don't want to, take away from anything else that's on that album but but those lyrics are just stunning i mean those those lyrics you said like dagger to the heart Mm -hmm. a few minutes ago those lyrics are dagger to the heart why why is that because he's so good at writing lyrics yeah but why they dagger to your heart they just affect me that way i i you know you i don't have an answer to the why of it doesn't remind you of something in your life. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not saying because I know. No, I it goes. I think. I think. I think. Lyrically, it goes beyond people's personal experiences, and, huh. and and it speaks beyond that. It speaks to really archetypal emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, on a on a higher level, a it's, human condition or something. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay. You know, and, and there's other songs on there that do that too. Mm. Did you read his autobiography? Did you ever read that? Uh, Chronicles, it's called. Yeah, I think Chronicles. Have you got? Yeah, I think I've, I think I've got it here. Actually, Jeez. yeah, I did read it. It's a good read. It's like reading his lyrics. It's it's just crazy how the guy's got a a Bob voice. It's just it's his voice. You know, it's his voice, even though it's a book and not a song. It's just. I don't know. It's got yeah. this magic to. I really just remember losing myself in that book. I mean, I, I like the abstract lyrics mm, of the mm. early stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, just like like a Rolling Stone. They're all good. I mean, all of his phases—the folk phase, the protest phase—and then the like. You know, the abstract. You know, Mister Tambourine Man mm-hmm. lyrics. Um, this the you know the hallucinogenic stuff, but then it goes to Blood on the Tracks, and it's. Uh, it's it's it goes to the deepest level yet. Uh-huh. What an amazing um, reason to have this song on a space station with you. I mean, it's yeah, a great I, companion. Yeah, yeah. Especially if it's like if every you take that that drug and every time you listen to it, it's like the first time you heard it. Uh, you'd not be just going, side. You'd be going, oh my god, yeah. oh my god, all the time. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like your your whole life would be in a, yeah. in amazement. Someone's got it in for me. They're planting stars 
You 
Who's next? Oh, my goodness. I almost expected you to pick more live at Leeds for some reason. I almost did. Uh-huh. Very close. Uh-huh. In fact, I thought about right, uh, picking live at Leeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost did. Where do you stand with Pete? It's very close. It's just a, you know, live at Leeds, um, it has, you know, it's quite a bit of live at Leeds' cover versions. Mm-hmm. And I I like the original Townsend yeah. material better. Yeah, I mean it's it's fine that somebody you know does another summertime blues and they, mm. you know, and 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 all of that. But <clears throat> um, you ever meet Pete? No, 
Like to. I did play on the same bill with him once, but oh. we didn't. I didn't get to talk to him. He seems like a kind of a forbidding guy to talk to. In fact, of. just last year we, we we played on a bill with him. With the Who or him on his with own? With the Who. What was that? It was at a festival in Spain. Oh, why didn't you? Oh, was it or or are they just ring fenced? You can't get near them or whatever. Yeah, they they had they had a special security detail, and mm-hmm. they they weren't in the same backstage area as everybody else. What would you even say to Pete? He's a I I, I think he's a pretty scary not scary, but you know he just doesn't seem like he'd be that interested in just talking. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. I wasn't really that impressed with his book, his, bio, oh, yeah. his autobiography. I, I think I got about two-thirds of the way through it, and then, huh. and then I thought, nah. Why? I liked it. I liked his I got, book. I got bored with it. Too much introspection? Yeah. Ah. You not go for introspection yourself? Well, I go for it if it's, if, if it's interesting. Your own introspection? Well, anyone's if it's interesting. You know, if, it, if, it's, if it's saying something to me mm. that, that – um, yeah, I just thought it was dull. Even the stuff about addiction and his, I mean, there's a ton of, I mean, about dealing with that abuse stuff and all of that. I mean, the guy's got a lot of stuff to deal with. Yeah. But just lost you. Yeah. Huh. I didn't think it was very great. I mean, Keith's autobiography was about addiction too, but mm-hmm. much more interesting than Townsend's. I wonder if that's the Which way. I was surprised by because I love I love his guitar playing. and Yeah. And and I and absolute thing. He's an absolute genius songwriter, and great singer too. I mean, I like his solo work. I you know, saw you got the album out there. You got the one of his solo LPs. You've got just yeah, sitting in your yeah, living room. I, I, so I'm a I'm a huge Pete Townsend fan. So I was a little bit disappointed with the book. Here's, how's this for a hypothesis? Then maybe you. Maybe you he should have been interviewed by you and bring out some more interesting things. <laughs> He's left to his own devices. Yeah. He doesn't do that well. Well, that was a compliment. That was a, that was the speaker turn. You, so you stabbed me in the heart, but then you 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 just gave me a compliment. Exactly. Oh, thank you. Um, now I'm now I'm all you know flustered. Um, what I was going to say was I, was I had a hypothesis that just jumped into my head about maybe you liked Keith Keith's um, you know way of dealing introspective you know looking at it himself versus Pete's because maybe. Pete, maybe Keith's is a bit more relaxed to it. He's maybe it's a little less uh, self-questioning, a bit more. Yeah, it wasn't as sort of academic, or Keith was more conversational. The reading that book was like he was really there talking to you, yeah, like we're talking now. Whereas the Townsend book seemed like it was a little bit too studied and too thought over and and um, too considered. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's not, we don't we don't have to talk about Pete's book anymore. No, we don't. But but the hypothesis I'm going to explore with you is maybe you're maybe you're drawn more to people that are less. Um, I just had the word for it. More and more. Um, I don't know. Just kind of able to rise above. Maybe less self questioning. Beat themselves up less about it. Just forward momentum it is what it is you know keith doesn't doesn't question himself or beat himself up for anything he did right is that something that you you appreciate in a guy and you're in a you know as opposed to the kind of the, the real navel gazing and the, i suppose so yeah mm. i mean i never thought about it that in that way before but i suppose yeah I'd, if i had to pick between the two i'd take mm. the 
I'd take the first one. Because here's the line I'm going to draw between you and Keith that, that occurred to me as we were walking earlier on. And, and it comes to this, 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 what we were talking about before gigs and the tiredness and getting yourself up, even when you want to go to bed and it's one o'clock and, and sacking Brian Jones. Um, I guess you could call it single mindedness in some ways. Um, but we're getting towards motivation, self motivation, drive, where it comes from again. And clearly for Keith, music was music, Keith and Mick, music was always the thing above everything else, you know. You were, you were with them or you weren't, but there was nothing that was going to come between them and, and making the music. And as bad as Keith ever got in the early 70s or mid-70s, whatever it was, he still got himself up on stage and they still did the job. Yeah, and, he always cleaned up for tours. Yeah. And now I'm, I just, unless it was obvious, I'm not suggesting that the drug and alcohol thing, I'm not drawing that comparison, but you're clearly a guy who's incredibly driven. We've heard all these, you know, the things you've accomplished in your life is more than most people would accomplish in six lifetimes. And you're not done yet. You know, you're still, you, you know. I'm looking forward to having more time to do stuff. Right. <laughs> next year. Yeah. yeah. But I don't even know if you're aware of how driven you are because it probably just seems like your normal thing. Normal. It's just normal. You don't question it. Do you, have, you ever, have you ever thought, damn, I'm driven? No. Huh. Am I the first person that's ever said that to you before? No, I mean, I've been called type double A and, and a workaholic and, you know, and things like that. Yeah. Maybe you're the first one to use the word driven, but yeah, same idea. Where does it come from then? Now don't say genetics. Well, you can, you can say what you want. You're the guest on my show, but where does it come from? Where, what drives you? I, you know, really, um, I just don't. I don't like to sit still and do nothing. I, uh -huh. I want to be doing something. Yeah. I want to be working on something and making things happen. And, um, you know, whether not for a goal, no, but just for doing something for the act of just, yeah, yeah. For, just for the journey for, you know, for there's not that, you know, I guess there's an awareness of the finiteness of the li of life and, yeah. and, 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 you know, you only have so many days to do things and you never know when it's going to be over. So you might as well get as many things in as possible. When did the clock start ticking for you? Do you remember how old you were? Oh, probably as a teenager. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you know why it started ticking for you? Probably just, you know, just, uh, things i was exposed to mm -hmm. okay yeah. you don't have to go there yeah, reading you know oh, not exposed to in a bad way just inspired by yeah yeah philosophical reading and huh. you know things like that anything you could name check uh i got really into gurdjieff when i was a kid don't. and um yeah gurdjieff and uspensky and that that sort of this stuff about um if if you don't know what that is, it's 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 difficult to talk mm -hmm. about, but it's it's just theory, psychological theories okay. about um, awareness and being awake in the world, be awake and, and aware, of, yeah, uh, in that, the world, to that not, kind of thing, to, to not sleepwalk through the world, exactly, mm -hmm. right. That, that's a very okay. good way to put it. Okay, I mean, it's a blessing, right? It's a blessing to 
better than the the, the Pink Floyd. You know that goddamn. You know the way that song comes back to you. Time. Yeah. You know how does that that song just comes back and haunts you through life, doesn't it? I don't uh, care for that album, but um, in fact, I, I I really dislike that album. But you know the lyric I'm talking. about. But I know about. the lyric you're talking about. To me, you know, I I was very much into Pink Floyd mm-hmm. er, early. You know, the first the Sid stuff, the Sid stuff, and then the early Gilmore stuff mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I saw him in 1970. Oh, and uh, it was a great concert. That was when they they had just released metal. It's metal. Oh my god. What's that song that with the ascending, down, 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 down. That sort of just that, that's got the football chant at the beginning and the. Oh end. yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's song. Got, uh, I can't think of the name Liverpool. Of it. It's you'll never walk alone. At the, I no yeah. idea why they stopped yeah. that. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting. Incredible. And of course, the, in America, we didn't as teenagers in America, we didn't know what that was. Yeah, what did you think it was? We we didn't know what that was. We we didn't know it was anything to do with football. Because you don't chant like that in American no. sports. There's no, there's no, you'll never walk alone. No, we we thought that was just a very, <laughs> you know, very creative thing that they did with that song. Where did that come from? Sounds like they got fifty thousand people to sing in the studio. Yeah, incredible. <laughs> I never thought about that because if you grow up in England, that's just that's the sound of football. That is, you know, I I support West Ham. I I stood in those crowds of thirty thousand people singing the song. Yeah, no, we, we we had no idea what that was about. <laughs> <laughs> so you, when did it, when did that penny drop? Like, did you go oh, to England and somebody years said, later? Yeah, that's years funny. Later. That's funny. So it's like me not knowing how the hell Keith got that sound with the Windex. Yeah, and for you it was the cop at Anfield with "You'll Never Walk Alone." Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, huh? So I love love that early Pink Floyd stuff, and yeah, and um, just that that. Dark Side of the Moon was such a. I, I thought it was such a sellout, and yeah, I hated hated to the commerciality of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I feel like we got some. We got some. That was a really. Good... It was like that Queen song. Another one bites the dust. Uh-huh. That was when they bit the dust. Yeah, for me. Yeah, it's hard for me to not jump into the Queen. Because they they're but but not to disagree with you, not to disagree with you at all. But I've got to be careful there because you get me on my favourite subject. Um, yeah, okay. So so Pink Floyd. Um, how did we, get, we weren't even talking about Pink Floyd. Um, oh yeah, time time. You know, you fritter and waste the hours in the offhand way, and um, suddenly ten years gets behind you. Yeah, no, that's no one that's a good lyric. Know. No question about it. The it, sun is the same a, in a relative way, but you're older. It's a fantastic uh, lyric, yeah. and I always felt like. Damn, I'm glad I wasn't that guy that turned around at 55 and went, "Oh shit," you know? Yeah. Oh shit, I've spent the last 30 years doing a goddamn job where I'm stuck up against someone's armpit in the rush hour traffic every day, you know? And and the penny dropped for you pretty early. Yeah. Yeah. Well, God bless. Well, just name check that that, that the philosopher again. The oh, uh, Gurdjieff and Uspensky. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Got to check that out. Yeah. So we went to, yeah, so who's next? It could have been Live at Leeds, but it was who's next. And But you went with a really, I mean, the most delicate kind of almost soft song that whoever did. I, well, that's not true at all. But that certainly that it wasn't a ball terror. It wasn't, won't get fooled again. Um, it was a. No, but it, it does, but it has a ball tearing element to it. Mm. 
you know, it has, it has that dynamic mm-hmm. in it within the, within the song where it yeah. does go hard. It goes very soft to very hard and yeah. the lyrics are, are beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's that classic example of Pete using an acoustic to, to underpin what, you know, should be heavy. It's almost like the Angus Young thing or the Malcolm Young thing, rest in peace, um, where, you know, the, the guitar actually wasn't very distorted at all. You know that thing where a lot of you listen to a lot of the Who stuff and you think it's the, these are the heaviest songs, but Pete was actually playing a an acoustic guitar pretty high up in the mix for this stuff. Yeah, I think that's in this song as well, isn't it? Blue Eyes has got a. No, well, he does a lot of acoustic guitar playing. Yeah. I mean, substitute is yeah. acoustic with the flamenco thing acoustic with the song. with that little flamenco flick he does with his yeah. right hand. So there's there's a, yeah he he's a master acoustic guitar player. Yeah.
So pleased that you picked yeah, that. I just, yeah. So I just did an acoustic album well, earlier, the, earlier this year with James Williams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the redoing of, um, well, was it all Stooges uh, inspired by? It was two Stooges songs and two uh, Kill City songs. Yeah. And the name of that album again, please? Acoustic KO, mm-hmm. which is a takeoff on Metallic KO, mm-hmm. which was the li- the French um semi bootleg of the last Stooges performance ever before the Ref- Reformation of course but yeah, before the one that I just I saw yeah so how did James and you come to was that just because he's a pal of yours he's a yeah he, well he became a pal recently we I oh. didn't know him he, he's not an Ann Arbor person oh uh he um he did live in Ann Arbor for a short time but after I left Ann Arbor yeah, and uh, when he, he was sort of a late comer to the Stooges, he wasn't in the original lineup. Yeah. Was he, he was like three, three albums in, was he, no, was he on the second album? Is that, no, he's no. only on the third album. Third album. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did a Stooges the, the show in, back in Ann Arbor mm. It was a tribute, a memorial show for Ron, and 
um, the Stooges with Williamson did a set and then Williamson went off and I, I came on and then we did the, the, the older song, the first songs from the first two albums with me, um, the early Stooges stuff yeah. I with me. And, um, that's where I met him was at that, right. at that concert. And you sang, you sang lead vocal. On acoustic KO, I did on, but the the tribute to no Iggy 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 sang yeah right okay so it was, it was the Stooges right Scotty Scotty played drums Mike Watt oh. on bass and me on guitar and Iggy on vocals it was the Stooges with me instead of Williamson how was that? me instead of Ashton how was how was that feeling for you amazing was that the pinnacle pretty close. I don't know where the pinnacle is, but that was pretty that close. Was, that, that was, was that was there. one of the highest highest moments. Yeah, I was I was um, yeah. I really I really wanted to do well, and I wanted to you know I wanted to play at my peak, and I think I did. You put some serious woodshedding in before you got up there. Um, not really. Cause I knew those songs anyway. Mm. I, I, I had done those songs in the past. I knew how the, so the songs go. So not so much woodshedding on the songs, but just, uh, it was just more of, um, getting the mental, the mindset right to take it as far as possible. And you did that. Yeah, I did that. And I did that. Yeah. And it was really great. It was, um, I mean, that show sold out. It was a, in a theater and two and a half thousand and it, it sold out five minutes after the tickets went on sale. And, um, so it was packed. And after the show, it was Iggy's birthday, by the way. Oh. And at, there was a dinner. We went to this at the hotel where we were staying at, which is Weber's. Um, they had, reserve part of the restaurant this side room off the main restaurant for the band and it was um it was about two in the morning and so there was a dinner there and i was sit sitting next to iggy mm. and he said uh he said dennis he goes that we played when we played dirt tonight he goes that's the best dirt i think that's the best dirt i've ever done oh. yes Damn. Thank you. I said, yeah, great. He sounds like a, a really, really good guy, Iggy. Every time I've seen him, like, you know, heard him, I guess he got sober at some point or whatever. But recently he's a, he seems like, I mean, he's got the stories coming out of his ears and that. But is, was, did, he, did he meet your expect? I mean, of course, I'm not inviting you to say anything bad about Iggy, but did he, that was a great story running up to it did he come was there rehearsals and was he was he great and warm and inviting to you during those as well yeah yeah he was fine he was very professional I, you know but very different now than what i know the stooges to have been in the past it's like that's run like a space shuttle launch now i mean yeah. it's everything is really well organized yeah they, they have a great manager this guy henry mcgrogan uh, and he, it's just, it, everything runs like clockwork and, um, and if it doesn't, it gets fixed immediately. Yeah. And Iggy's 
ultimately professional and 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 uh, on point and focused and all about getting the music right. That's all it is. And um, there's none of the behavior that we know from before. Mm. It's very different. And uh, and yeah, and he was very good to me, uh, personable, kind, friendly. I'd met him before. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the first time I met him, but in fact, when Ronnie died, he 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 rang me. And oh. Two weeks later, he rang me and asked me if I'd take Ronnie's place in the band oh. because they had fifty shows booked that year. Oh. Ron, Ronnie died in January, and they had they had their their world tour for that year already booked. This is in two thousand and nine. Yeah, and um, and the question: Are we going to cancel? Or are we going to go on? And he asked me if I would step up and do that. And and I said I would. And we talked for about 45 minutes on the phone. And um, He rang you from Florida? From Florida, and I was in in Sydney. Mm-hmm. And um, then he got back to me later, and he said, we've decided it's too soon. We're not going to do it. And I said, I think that's fine. That's it's probably the right call. I said, if you... If you needed me to do it, I'd do it, but I think that's fine. Yeah. And then the following year, when the Stooges went back out on the road, they brought James. Mm. J- they got James out of retirement to do it. And he'd been like a Silicon Valley guy for a number of years or something. He was a senior executive at Sony. Oh, Sony. Pardon me. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and um, he was really high up in Sony and, 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 uh, and had, had retired and moved out to Hawaii. Yeah. And, uh, so James, uh, they had been, you know, that show you saw in 2005, Mm -hmm. no raw power songs. Mm. It's all from the first two albums. Mm. And they didn't want to do any of the songs that Iggy wrote with James. Mm. They wanted it to be just the first version of the Stooges, the main version. And, um, so they'd been touring the world a lot. Nobody had seen the raw power stuff. So in the reunion. Mm. So the idea was, I think, to do the Iggy and the Stooges with James Williamson, mm. the raw power tour. Mm. So James got the call. James said, yes. Yeah. They went and did that. And um, as a result, I didn't get, that job but that's fine i think that was the right call too that was very smart smart mixed mixed emotions though still i mean that was almost a kind of well i would yeah you know you never know how Mm. things are going to turn out yeah but i'm sure that if i had have done that there would have been other opportunities that i would have missed out on so you never you can't no you can't second guess that stuff but can't live your life like that but i met james at that tribute show and found and got to talking to him and found out that he live the place where he lives in Hawaii is really close to where we live in Hawaii when we're there. Same island. Same island, not very far. Same side of the island, actually. Ah. They live up at Waikoloa. And he and his wife, Linda. And uh, so he said, oh, well, next time we're all in Hawaii at the same time, let's get together. Yeah. So that's what we've been doing. Oh. It's just hanging out and you know, doing stuff and uh, then had the idea of doing this record. 
this is eight eight years ago now. So eight years you've been meeting up with him and hanging out. And yeah. That's great. That's really cool. That's kind of a, I don't know. You lost, a, you lost a dear friend, but you made another. Yeah, that's true. In, in that moment. That's true. Huh. That's really sweet. All right. So we go on to the next band, you know, I'm again, I'm just so happy you picked a Kinks song because the Kinks, as I said to you, for me, there's not, there's not many bands that remind me of London the same way as Kinks do. Um, but why did you pick Sunny Afternoon? It's always been one of my favorites. Um, great, great progression. Yeah. Yeah. Descending chromatic. That kind of, yeah. Descending yeah. chromatic progression with, with that melody laid over the top of it. It's absolutely brilliant. And, oh, so cool. you know, and you could have picked a number of kink songs. Obviously, Waterloo Sunset is amazing. Yeah. And all that. But I just like Sunny. And, and I, I I like the casualness of the the vocal approach yeah. and and the lyric is yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean to be able to write stuff like that is I'm I'm very envious that he can write stuff like that. That's just so off the cuff. The tax man's taken all my dough. That wouldn't have you wouldn't have known what the hell that was about growing up in America. You think what they in a baker's or something They're making bread? No, you knew dough. You knew dough. Yeah, yeah. Same yeah, same slang. Same slang in America. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Oh, we probably taught you that. Probably. Uh, but okay, no, I, I, great song. And that, yeah, that chromatic thing, the Beatles did it with um, I and the Walrus as well, you know? Yeah, yeah. That thing. and it and Especially it, using cellos and stuff. Yeah. And it reminded me, what's that? You'll know the name probably. That there's that there's that infinite staircase that goes up and down and never finishes. Yeah, the, cir- there's, what is it, the circle of fifths. Yeah, right. Yeah, the circle of fifths. It just... And like you said, to 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 lay that down with the melody over the top of it with those lyrics, I mean, I know it's just damn, Ray it's fabulous. Davis in nineteen sixty, what is it, sixty seven, sixty eight or something. Okay, so everyone, pause this amazing interview conversation. Sorry, and and listen to that song. <laughs> No. 
sitting here Sipping at my ice cold beer Blazing on the sunny So the, I do not, I did not, and I I listened to this song for the first time last night. Uh, you picked a Mississippi John Hurt yeah. song. Yeah. From 1928, is yeah. that true? Yeah. <sighs> okay Recordings, is that how you say Okay Records, yeah. Uh-huh. And and the song is called Avalon Blues? I think it's, I think the, the album's oh, Avalon sorry. Blues, mm. and the, the song is called uh, Make Me a Palette ah. on Your Floor. And please explain. Well, it's, it's, you know, I, I like almost all of the old Delta blues guys, the yeah. country blues guys. Yeah. I love that stuff. That's where everything comes from. You That's go where rock and roll comes from. In that stuff, you can really get into it. I mean, yeah, you can start with Robert Johnson in the, you know, around that same, same time frame. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, all these guys. Are Bill Brunzi and um, love Brunzi, his version of Key to the Highway. Uh-huh. I, you know, I do that in my acoustic set, oh. the Brunzi Key to the Highway version. Uh-huh. Um, Bucka White, uh, Blind Blake, Lightning Hopkins from Texas. Mm-hmm. Um, I, one of the things that I did to teach myself how to play guitar was learned lightning hopkins oh. riffs um so i was in, deep in into that stuff and um but as far as something to listen to for the rest of your life <laughs> you know, john hurt has yeah. the most soothing relaxing voice mm. and he's he just sounds it just puts you in a nice place okay so this... so, so i was gonna pick a country blues album mm-hmm. of some sort mm-hmm. And I sort of thought about all of them, and I thought, well, that's probably the one I would. So you this this was for the plate for the space station. This was the one that you felt that would be the most the easiest to spend a, a lot of time with. Yeah, yeah. Mm. 
because it's peaceful it's relaxing it's, yeah mm-hmm. did you have an or do you have a, an electric blues guy are you a bb or you're freddie or are you an albert or are you a muddy waters well, or- well, of course i love the three kings mm-hmm. and 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 when i when i saw the rolling stones in 69 bb king opened oh, for oh my goodness actually bb king and terry reed were now the um, openers that's some concert man. 17 years old you're seeing bb support the rolling stones yeah um wow and but i guess my fave probably muddy mm-hmm. and um be my favorite and uh for the electric ones you spend much time in chicago no didn't go you didn't ever go through and like did you catch the tail end of that ever you, you never went and saw any of those old guys when they were still playing like that kind of club thing no i never did get to actually do that mm-hmm. So you were going to I saw some of the old guys play, but mm-hmm. when, it was when they would, you know, when they had a uh, a uh, a revival of that kind of music because mm-hmm. people found out that that's where the Stones and Led Zeppelin and and people were getting their stuff from. Yeah, and then and then mm-hmm. they had a revival of like Howlin' Wolf and mm-hmm. Muddy and mm-hmm. and people like that, and then they would come through and play in places like Ann Arbor, Michigan, mm-hmm. and for for the students, you know, they'd mm-hmm. play at student functions and at outdoor concerts and things like that. So yeah, we I did get to see those people play, mm-hmm. but not in not in their home environment in Chicago. Yeah, I saw you know I saw I saw Muddy, I saw Furry Lewis. Um, Dr. Ross, One String Sam, One String Sam, yeah, who had played a guitar with One String. Yeah, he had a he had a plank of wood, like a a, uh, a I think it was like a one by four plank mm-hmm. with two nails on mm. in either end. And a piano wire stretched between yeah. the two nails and a pickup. And a pickup under it. And, and and he played it with a slide. Well, you mentioned Led Zeppelin. That's what Jack White did at the start of that documentary, It Might Get Loud. You ever see that? No. They It was good. You'd like it, I think. It was Jimmy Page, Jack White, and The Edge. And they got him into this kind of, I guess you call it a studio. It's more like a warehouse, almost like set up in the middle on a little podium or in a, in a square podium like a boxing ring with no ropes and they had a conversation and they pulled out their guitars and jimmy jimmy showed them a whole lot of love you know edge edge took them through how he how he built up where the streets have no name but at the very start of it the film opens with jack white hanging around a nail into a plank and stretching a piano wire between it and tying it and then putting a pickup under the thing yeah that's called a diddly bow ah so who's so the that's ones, how the name Bo Diddley? Yeah, that's how oh, Bo Diddley got his name. Is that he right? Just turned it around. Didn't know that. But yeah, but one string Sam, mm. um, his 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 record was "I Need a Hundred Dollars." Great, a great song. What year are we talking about here? I'm um, I'm thinking he had that record out in the fifties, uh-huh. but he was still playing in the in the sixties and seventies. And with with got with. with the young guys like yourself and MC5 and Stooges, all those guys, were they, you know, was everyone like really respectful towards those guys? Oh, they, yeah. Yeah, they were still your guys. They were revered. Yeah, that's good. Because there was this kind of thing I know in the UK in the 60s where they they, they used to just kind of ship them over and tour them around all the theatres with, you know, 
eight different acts and you know and no one really i think in that at that time there wasn't people that the thing that set apart mick and keith when they met was almost that mick i think had the great record collection and keith had found his you know his equal they weren't that that blues thing just wasn't in the uk at least very well known yeah well the stones you know when they played ready steady go mm, mm. they insisted that they bring uh, howlin wolf over to to play on the on the show with them uh that that was the their precondition for doing ready steady oh. go was that howlin wolf would be on the bill i didn't know that is that when they did little red rooster that that uh maybe i I don't know. I don't think they did Little Red Rooster on that on that show. Okay. I don't think they would have done it with Howlin' Wolf there. But they, um, but you know, Brian introduced him and was so respectful, and then yeah, had a little speech about how great Howlin' Wolf was and oh. how influential and important he was. Good. Yeah, it was it was good. Pay paying respects to the the greats that go before us. Yeah. In New York this morning, just about half past nine. In New York this morning, just about half past nine. Thought of my morning album, couldn't hardly keep from crying. Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. Avalon, my hometown, always on my mind. Put in mamas in Avalon, want me there all the time. Thank you. 
feels like a good time to wrap it up. Yeah. Yep. Let's wrap it up. That's we went through all the all the songs. Is that okay? You okay? You had a good enough time. Yeah, it was great. Some different stuff. Yeah, good. Uh-huh. All right. Well, we still got to give you your um your religious text. Do you remember what you said? Yeah, I, I said Beelzebub's tales to his grandson. Oh, and this is the guy that you, Gurdjieff's the that's the guy you just name checked before yeah yeah i've read the book before but gurdjieff said you have to read it three times to understand it which Ooh. is probably true and reading it once is almost kills you it's so tedious but um, like Dick or something. but i mean if you've got all that time <laughs> on the space station yeah it's it's um it was one of three the trilogy that gurdjieff wrote to try to transmit his teachings to the wider population. And Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson was the first book. The second one was Meetings with Remarkable Men, of which a movie was made. I think Terrence Stamp was in the movie and played Gurdjieff in the movie. Oh. And uh, it was, was sort of autobiographical. Right. And then the third one was, I think it was called All and Everything. or No, the third one was called Life is real only when I am. And um, and Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandson is like a commentary on humanity. And the framing of it is that Beelz, you know, Beelzebub is one of the fallen angels. And he's been kicked out of heaven. And so he's he's flying in his spaceship with his grandson. And uh, they happen to be in the vicinity of our solar system. And so the grandson says, grandfather, you know, that, that third planet down there, you know, that, there's these people, you know, and you spent some time down there, didn't you? You know, did, weren't you down there for a while? You know, before you got reinstated? And uh, he goes, yes. He goes, yeah, I, I'd spent a lot of time down there. And um, since we were, you know, since we're in the area, I'll tell you about these people that live, these human beings. And then he goes on and then it goes on and talks about the, about humanity. Oh. And it's, and it's Beelzebub telling his grandson about, about, about that. And who turned you on to this at 14? Or did you, what was I the, know, I just ran into it somewhere. I don't, I don't know. Heard about it. Somebody said it was that's cool. A, that's a, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess it was the sixties. Yeah, I mean, wow, what a book to to blow your mind at that stage, you know? Yeah, amazing, almost like that. Gig. And the observations about humanity are mm. very are uh, at times really hilarious mm. and at times mm. really serious. And I'm going to guess that they they're exactly as appropriate appetite as they are. Uh, they are exactly as appetite now as they were then. I'm. Pretty sure, yeah. Mm. Have you read all three of his books, did you say, or just that first one? I've read the first two. First two. Yeah. Can I read the third? I don't think it's available anywhere. I've, oh. uh, I think it was something that he either partially wrote and never finished or when he died or or he, uh, or he, maybe it was just suppressed. I don't know. Oof. I've never yeah. seen a copy. You've got that bear trap memory that a good doctor should have to remember the the titles and you just went bang, 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 knocked them out there, even though you've remembered the, you've remembered all of that information, even though you've not read the third book. Yeah. Mm. Got to have a good memory though. The other reason for that book is because, you know, it's 
they're in a spaceship in the vicinity of the solar system. Yeah. We are, yeah. you know, it sort of fits in with, yeah. the, you know, with the theme. That's perfect. The theme of the podcast. You went along with the theme of the podcast in a big way. Yeah. You know? Um, okay. And you picked, I'm going to guess this is a, a big heavy book to give you lots to read. The story of civilization. Yeah. Heavy. So just plenty to keep you going. Yeah. It's essentially history. By Will and Ariel Durant. Yeah. Were they, were they brothers, sister? or what Husband is, and wife. Husband and wife. Historians. Ah. When was this published? Uh, I think um, maybe the 1950s or 60s. Even the title, it sounds like a Ken Burns documentary. Or yeah, something, it's, you know, it's, it's like that, that, but it's, in, it's 12 volumes. Oof. It starts in Egypt, ancient Egypt, wow, and and it goes through till Napoleon, and there, there was going to be two more volumes, but they they died before they could oh. finish the the series. So it takes you through twelve volumes of heavy history, historical work from uh, ancient Egypt up through the Greeks, up mm. through the Romans, up through everything up to. You know the eighteens. So for somebody, Napoleon, that's, you know, the, what happened to the French Revolution? It's gonna be a clumsy conceit that I'm about to launch into, but why? Not? I've, I've never let that stop me. For somebody that looks forward continually and and drives forward continually, that being you, do you do a lot of looking back? I, I like to read history. Okay, so world history, not so much reflect on your personal history. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. You don't re-examine. There's all those interviews to do to yeah, that's cause true. that to happen. Right. I, don't, I don't have to do that in my spare time. What am I thinking? I've just added <laughs> to that lexicon. <laughs> just I'll just listen to this interview. Actually, I should send this to you once it's done. Um, and just in case we were going to get a bit too serious, your luxury item. Like, is this a real one? It feels like you've actually found a company that makes this thing. Well, I'm, I don't... A companion robot. Mm, intellectual companion robot. Yeah. Not a dumb one. No. A clever one. Yeah, one that you can talk to and mm-hmm. have have conversations with and that, that has a large uh, memory storage of a lot of things. I feel like I need to give you a present beyond the bottle of wine I bought you, know, and, and I'm hoping you haven't seen a film called um, Her. I think it's called Her. Have you heard of that book? Uh, the, the film that was no. Joaquin Phoenix – Oh man, well that's going to blow your mind. I'm going to give you that as a gift afterwards. We're going to look it up. It's it's just set in the near future. Cool. Um, you know, I read. Uh, I, I I like to read um, science fiction books mm-hmm. by Ian M. Banks. Do you read him? I've the answer. Short answer is no. But I've got one of his books waiting for me at home to to read. Which after. one? I haven't read it yet, so I couldn't tell you. Um, he, he writes. <clears throat> he, he his books are. <clears throat> fantastic he's a great writer mm-hmm. and and uh they if he writes as ian banks mm-hmm. it's not science fiction ah mm-hmm. oh, okay and it's and it's if he writes as ian m banks mm-hmm. it's science fiction oh, that's a message to and the the he writes about the culture which mm-hmm. is this multi-galactic uh civilization Mm. somewhere in the universe Mm. that is very more advanced than us where people have these 
companion, they call them drones, companion drones, mm -hmm. or they're robots that are sentient and aware and have emotional responses and and um well the blade runner con constructs as well yeah yeah and and so it'd be good to have one of those if yeah. you're on this if you're out there by yourself that would be then you really wouldn't good. be by yourself um the i'm gonna finish the book about the spitfire pilot and then i'm gonna read the in m banks book um but this this the, the concern just real quick this story is that it's near near future but the guys joaquin plays a guy who uh pay some money and, and to, to pay for a virtual partner girlfriend but there's no physical object it's just a um a voice so he, he starts a relationship with a with a virtual woman that he that a company develops and, and everything and that's all i'll say about it it's blunt my mind design wise acting the way it's written the story real good real good film okay so you're intellectual companion robot though you very much need a physical object the voice isn't just going to be enough you're going to need that thing in yeah. the i googled it and there's actually a thing there's this woman well they're coming up with this now i mean the japanese is, are, yeah. are in the forefront of it she didn't look anything that i'd want to you know what i mean they've got some work to do there still well it's in the early stages <laughs> I guess. of development i mean i guess there's time still oh yeah we haven't got the interplanetary travel thing really sussed or the intergalactic travel stuff yeah one piece of music you're still going to take give me shelter yeah yeah okay then hit me with your quote from hunter s thompson you can read it okay so i have to get my glasses oh sorry dude while dennis is doing that i just okay. gotta i just gotta give can't read a damn thing anymore without these glasses. I just got to give thanks again to this whole experience. We're going to sign off with this. I'm gonna I'm gonna let Dennis have the last word and um, thank him again. Thanks, mate. You're, you're you're a legend. That's been damn two hours forty minutes. So I'm so sorry to take up your time. That's but all right. Not a problem. You got, it was good, it was guys. Good. Whoever's knows Dennis as a friend or a fan or whatever he is. You're gonna. I can vouch for him. He's a he's a top guy, and 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 it's always a pleasure to spend some time in his company. Thank you. Um, so Chris said, uh, uh, wanted me to choose a quote, favorite quote, and there's a lot of good ones out there, but I chose this one from Hunter S. Thompson. Life should not be a journey to the grave, with the intention of arriving safely in a pretty and well-preserved body but rather to skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly used up, totally worn out, and loudly proclaiming, wow, what a ride. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. Thanks, Dennis Tech.